Book Two, Chapter Five of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather, Chapter Five, Mercury Prompting. Fledgeby deserved Mr. Alfred Lammle's eulogium. He was the meanest cur existing, with a single pair of legs, and instinct, a word we all clearly understand, going largely on four legs, and reason always on two, meanness on four legs never attains the perfection of meanness on two. The father of this young gentleman had been a money-lender, who had transacted professional business with the mother of this young gentleman, when he, the latter, was waiting in the vast dark antechambers of the present world to be born. The lady, a widow, being unable to pay the money-lender, married him, and in due course Fledgeby was summoned out of the vast dark antechambers to come and be presented to the Registrar-General. Rather a curious speculation how Fledgeby would otherwise have disposed of his leisure until doomsday. Fledgeby's mother offended her family by marrying Fledgeby's father. It is one of the easiest achievements in life to offend your family when your family want to get rid of you. Fledgeby's mother's family had been very much offended with her for being poor, and broke with her for becoming comparatively rich. Fledgeby's mother's family was the Snigsworth family. She had even the high honour to be cousin to Lord Snigsworth, so many times removed that the noble Earl would have had no compunction in removing her one time more, and dropping her clean outside the cousinly pale, but cousin for all that. Among her pre-matrimonial transactions with Fledgeby's father, Fledgeby's mother had raised money of him at a great disadvantage on a certain reversionary interest. The reversion falling in soon after they were married, Fledgeby's father laid hold of the cash for his separate use and benefit. This led to subjective differences of opinion, not to say objective interchanges of bootjacks, backgammon boards, and other such domestic missiles between Fledgeby's father and Fledgeby's mother and those led to Fledgeby's mother spending as much money as she could, and to Fledgeby's father doing all he couldn't to restrain her. Fledgeby's childhood had been, in consequence, a stormy one, but the winds and the waves had gone down in the grave, and Fledgeby flourished alone. He lived in chambers in the Albany, did Fledgeby, and maintained a spruce appearance, but his youthful fire was all composed of sparks from the grindstone, and as the sparks flew off, went out, and never warmed anything, be sure that Fledgeby had his tools at the grindstone, and turned it with a wary eye. Mr. Alfred Lammle came round to the Albany to breakfast with Fledgeby. Present on the table, one scanty pot of tea, one scanty loaf, two scanty pats of butter, two scanty rashers of bacon, two pitiful eggs, and an abundance of handsome china bought a second-hand bargain. "'What do you think of Georgiana?' asked Mr. Lammle. "'Why, I'll tell you,' said Fledgeby, very deliberately. "'Do, my boy.' "'You misunderstand me,' said Fledgeby. "'I don't mean I'll tell you that. I mean I'll tell you something else.' "'Tell me anything, old fellow.' "'Ah, but there you misunderstand me again,' said Fledgeby. "'I mean I'll tell you nothing.' Mr. Lammle sparkled at him, but frowned at him, too. "'Look here,' said Fledgeby. "'You're deep, and you're ready. Whether I am deep or not, never mind, I am not ready. But I can do one thing, Lammle, 
I can hold my tongue, and I intend always doing it. You are a long-headed fellow, Fledgeby. Maybe, or may not be. If I am a short-tongued fellow, it may amount to the same thing. Now, Lemmel, I am never going to answer questions. My dear fellow, it was the simplest question in the world. Never mind. It seemed so. But things are not always what they seem. I saw a man examined as a witness in Westminster Hall. Questions put to him seemed the simplest in the world, but turned out to be anything rather than that, after he had answered him. Very well. Then he should have held his tongue. If he'd held his tongue, he would have kept out of scrapes that he got into. If I had held my tongue, you would never have seen the subject of my question, remarked Lammle, darkening. Now, Lammle, said Fascination Fledgeby, calmly feeling for his whisker, it won't do. I won't be led on into a discussion. I can't manage a discussion. But I can manage to hold my tongue. Can? Mr. Lammle fell back upon propitiation. I should think you could. Why, when these fellows of our acquaintance drink, and you drink with them, the more talkative they get, the more silent you get. The more they let out, the more you keep in. I don't object, Lammle, returned Fledgeby, with an internal chuckle, to being understood, though I object to being questioned. That certainly is the way I do it. And when all the rest of us are discussing our ventures, none of us ever know what a single venture of yours is. And none of you ever will from me, Lammle, replied Fledgeby, with another internal chuckle. That certainly is the way I do it. Why, of course it is, I know, rejoined Lammle, with a flourish of frankness and a laugh, and stretching out his hands as if to show the universe a remarkable man in Fledgeby. If I hadn't known it of my Fledgeby, should I have proposed our little compact of advantage to my Fledgeby? "'Ah!' remarked Fascination, shaking his head slyly. "'But I am not to be got at in that way. I am not vain. That sort of vanity don't pay, Lammle. No, no, no. Compliments only make me hold my tongue the more.' Alfred Lammle pushed his plate away, no great sacrifice under the circumstances of there being so little in it, thrust his hands in his pockets, leaned back in his chair, and contemplated Fredgeby in silence. Then he slowly released his left hand from its pocket, and made that bush of his whiskers, still contemplating him in silence. Then he slowly broke silence, and slowly said, "'What the devil!' Is this fellow about this morning? Now look here, Lammle, said Fascination Fledgeby, with the meanest of twinkles in his meanest of eyes, which were too near together, by the way. Look here, Lammle. I'm very well aware that I didn't show to advantage last night, and that you and your wife, who I consider is a very clever woman, and an agreeable woman, did. I am not calculated to show to advantage under that sort of circumstances. I know very well you two did show to advantage, and managed, capitally. But don't you on that account come talking to me as if I was your doll and puppet, because I am not. And all this, 
cried Alfred, after studying with a look the meanness that was feigned to have the meanest help, and yet was so mean as to turn upon it. All this because of one simple natural question. You should have waited till I thought proper to say something about it of myself. I don't like your coming over me with your Georgianas, as if you was her proprietor, and mine too. Well, when you are in the gracious mind to say anything about it of yourself, retorted Lammle, pray do. I have done it. I have said you managed capitally. You and your wife both. If you'll go on managing capitally, I'll go on doing my part. Only don't crow. I crow? exclaimed Lammle, shrugging his shoulders. Or, pursued the other, or take it into your head that people are your puppets, because they don't come out to advantage at the particular moments when you do, with the assistance of a very clever and agreeable wife. All the rest keep on doing, and let Mrs. Lammle keep on doing. Now, I've held my tongue when I thought proper, and I've spoken when I thought proper, and there's an end of that. And now the question is, proceeded Fledgeby, with the greatest reluctance, will you have another egg? No, I won't, said Lammle shortly. Perhaps you're right, and will find yourself better without it, replied Fascination, in greatly improved spirits. To ask you if you'll have another rasher would be unmeaning flattery, for it would make you thirsty all day. Will you have some more bread and butter? No, I won't, repeated Lammle. Then I will, said Fascination. And it was not a mere retort for the sound's sake, but was a cheerful, cogent consequence of the refusal. For if Lammle had applied himself again to the loaf, it would have been so heavily visited, in Fledgeby's opinion, as to demand abstinence from bread on his part for the remainder of that meal at least, if not for the whole of the next. Whether this young gentleman, for he was but three-and-twenty, combined with the miserly vice of an old man, any of the open-handed vices of a young one, was a moot point, so very honourably did he keep his own counsel. He was sensible of the value of appearances as an investment, and liked to dress well, but he drove a bargain for every movable about him, from the coat on his back to the china on his breakfast-table, and every bargain by representing somebody's ruin, or somebody's loss, acquired a peculiar charm for him. It was a part of his avarice to take, within narrow bounds, long odds at races. If he won, he drove harder bargains. If he lost, he half-starved himself, until next time. Why money should be so precious to an ass too dull and mean to exchange it for any other satisfaction, is strange. But there is no animal so sure to get laden with it, as the ass, who sees nothing written on the face of the earth and sky, but three letters LSD, not luxury, sensuality, dissoluteness, which they often stand for, but the three dry letters. Your concentrated fox is seldom comparable to your concentrated ass in money-breeding. Fascination Fledgeby feigned to be a young gentleman living on his means, but was known secretly to be a kind of outlaw in the bill-broking line and to put money out at high interest in various ways. His circle of familiar acquaintance, from Mr. Lammle round, all had a touch of the outlaw as to their rovings in the merry greenwood of Jobbery Forest, lying on the outskirts of the share-market and the stock-exchange. 
"'I suppose you, Lammle,' said Fledgeby, eating his bread and butter, "'always did go in for female society?' "'Always,' replied Lammle, glooming considerably under his late treatment. "'Came natural to you, eh?' said Fledgeby. "'The sex were pleased to like me, sir,' said Lammle, sulkily, but with the air of a man who had not been able to help himself. "'Made a pretty good thing of marrying, didn't you?' asked Fledgeby. The other smiled, an ugly smile, and tapped one tap upon his nose. "'My late governor made a mess of it,' said Fledgeby. "'But your... is the right name Georgina or Georgiana?' "'Georgiana.' "'I was thinking yesterday. I didn't know there was such a name. I thought it must end in Ina.' "'Why?' "'Why? You play, if you can, the concertina, you know,' replied Fledgeby, meditating very slowly. "'And you have, when you catch it, the scarlatina. And you can come down from a balloon in a parish—no, you can't, though. "'Well, say, Georgiute. <laughs> I mean, Georgiana.' "'You were going to remark of Georgiana,' Lammle moodily hinted, after waiting in vain. "'I was going to remark of Georgiana, sir,' said Fledgeby, not at all pleased to be reminded of his having forgotten it, "'that she don't seem to be violent, don't seem to be of the pitching-in order.' "'She has the gentleness of the dove, Mr. Fledgeby.' "'Of course you'll say so,' replied Fledgeby, sharpening the moment his interest was touched by another. "'But, you know, the real lookout is this. What I say, not what you say. I say, having my late governor and my late mother in my eye, that Georgiana don't seem to be of the pitching-in order.' The respected Mr. Lammle was a bully, by nature and by usual practice. Perceiving, as Fledgeby's affronts accumulated, that conciliation by no means answered the purpose here, he now directed a scowling look into Fledgeby's small eyes, for the effect of the opposite treatment. Satisfied by what he saw there, he burst into a violent passion, and struck his hand upon the table, making the china ring and dance. "'You are a very offensive fellow, sir,' cried Mr. Lammle, rising. "'You are a highly offensive scoundrel. What do you mean by this behaviour? "'I say,' remonstrated Fledgeby, "'don't break out.' "'You are a very offensive fellow, sir,' repeated Mr. Lammle. "'You are a highly offensive scoundrel.' "'I say, you know,' urged Fledgeby, quailing, "'Why, you coarse and vulgar vagabond,' said Mr. Lammle, looking fiercely about him, "'if your servant was here to give me sixpence of your money to get my boots cleaned afterwards, for you are not worth the expenditure, I'd kick you.' "'No, you wouldn't,' pleaded Fledgeby. "'I'm sure you'd think better of it.' "'I tell you what, Mr. Fledgeby,' said Lammle, advancing on him, "'since you presume to contradict me, I'll assert myself a little.' Give me your nose.' Fledgeby covered it with his hand instead, and said, retreating, "'I beg you won't.' "'Give me your nose, sir,' repeated Lammle. 
Still covering that feature, and backing, Mr. Fledgeby reiterated, apparently with a severe cold in his head, "'I beg, I beg, you won't!' "'And this fellow,' exclaimed Lammle, stopping and making the most of his chest, "'this fellow presumes on my having selected him, out of all the young fellows I know, for an advantageous opportunity.' This fellow presumes on my having in my desk round the corner his dirty note of hand for a wretched sum, payable on the occurrence of a certain event, which event can only be of my and my wife's bringing about. This fellow, Fledgeby, presumes to be impertinent to me. Lammle, give me your nose, sir. No, stop, I beg your pardon, said Fledgeby, with humility. What do you say, sir? demanded Mr. Lammle seeming too furious to understand. "'I beg your pardon,' repeated Fledgeby. "'Repeat your words louder, sir. The just indignation of a gentleman has sent the blood boiling to my head. I don't hear you.' "'I say,' repeated Fledgeby, with laborious explanatory politeness, "'I beg your pardon.' Mr. Lammle paused. "'As a man of honour, said he, throwing himself into a chair, "'I am disarmed.' Mr. Fledgeby also took a chair, though less demonstratively, and by slow approaches removed his hand from his nose. Some natural diffidence assailed him as to blowing it, so shortly after its having assumed a personal and delicate, not to say public, character, but he overcame his scruples by degrees, and modestly took that liberty under an implied protest. "'Lammle,' he said, sneakingly, when that was done, "'I hope we are friends again.' "'Mr. Fledgeby,' returned Lammle, "'say no more.' "'I must have gone too far in making myself disagreeable,' said Fledgeby, "'but I never intended it.' "'Say no more, say no more,' Mr. Lammle repeated in a magnificent tone. "'Give me your—' Fledgeby started. "'Hand.' They shook hands, and on Mr. Lammle's part, in particular, there ensued great geniality. For he was quite as much of a dastard as the other, and had been in equal danger of falling into the second place for good, when he took heart, just in time, to act upon the information conveyed to him by Fledgeby's eye. The breakfast ended in a perfect understanding— Incessant machinations were to be kept at work by Mr. and Mrs. Lammle, love was to be made for Fledgeby, and conquest was to be ensured to him. He, on his part, very humbly admitting his defects as to the softer social arts, and entreating to be backed to the utmost by his two able coadjutors. Little wrecked Mr. Podsnap of the traps and toils besetting his young person. He regarded her as safe within the temple of Podsnappery, hiding the fullness of time when she, Georgiana, should take him, Fitzpodsnap, who, with all his worldly goods, should her endow. It would call a blush into the cheek of his standard, young person, to have anything to do with such matters, save to take as directed, and with worldly goods, as per settlement, to be endowed. Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? I, Podsnap, perish the daring thought that any smaller creation should come between. It was a public holiday, and Fledgeby did not recover his spirits or his usual temperature of nose until the afternoon. 
Walking into the city in the holiday afternoon, he walked against a living stream setting out of it, and thus, when he turned into the precincts of St. Mary Axe, he found a prevalent repose and quiet there. A yellow, overhanging, plaster-fronted house, at which he stopped, was quiet too. The blinds were all drawn down, and the inscription, Pubsey and Co., seemed to doze in the counting-house window on the ground floor, giving on the sleepy street. Fledgeby knocked and rang, and Fledgeby rang and knocked, but no one came. Fledgeby crossed the narrow street, and looked up at the house-windows, but nobody looked down at Fledgeby. He got out of temper, crossed the narrow street again, and pulled the house-bell as if it were the house's nose, and he were taking a hint from his late experience. His ear at the keyhole seemed then, at last, to give him assurance that something stirred within. His eye at the keyhole seemed to confirm his ear, for he angrily pulled the house's nose again, and pulled, and pulled, and continued to pull, until a human nose appeared in the dark doorway. "'Now, you, sir!' cried Fledgeby. "'These are nice games!' He addressed an old Jewish man in an ancient coat, long of skirt and wide of pocket. A venerable man, bald and shining at the top of his head, and with long grey hair flowing down at its sides and mingling with his beard. A man who, with a graceful eastern action of homage, bent his head, and stretched out his hands with the palms downward, as if to deprecate the wrath of a superior. "'What have you been up to?' said Fledgeby, storming at him. "'Generous Christian master,' urged the Jewish man, it being holiday, I looked for no one. "'Holiday be blowed,' said Fledgeby, entering. "'What have you got to do with holidays? Shut the door.' With his former action the old man obeyed. In the entry hung his rusty, large-brimmed, low-crowned hat, as long out of date as his coat. In the corner near it stood his staff—no walking-stick, but a veritable staff. Fledgeby turned into the counting-house, perched himself on a business-stool, and cocked his hat. There were light boxes on shelves in the counting-house, and strings of mock beads hanging up. There were samples of cheap clocks, and samples of cheap vases of flowers, foreign toys, all. Perched on the stool, with his hat cocked on his head, and one of his legs dangling, the youth of Fledgeby hardly contrasted to advantage with the age of the Jewish man, as he stood with his bare head bowed, and his eyes, which he only raised in speaking, on the ground. His clothing was worn down to the rusty hue of the hat in the entry, but though he looked shabby, he did not look mean. Now, Fledgeby, though not shabby, did look mean. "'You have not told me what you are up to, sir,' said Fledgeby, scratching his head with the brim of his hat. "'Sir, I was breathing the air.' "'In the cellar that you didn't hear?' "'On the housetop.' "'Upon my soul. That's a way of doing business.' "'Sir,' the old man represented with a grave and patient air, "'there must be two parties to the transaction of business, and the holiday has left me alone.' "'Ah! Can't be buyer and seller, too. That's what the Jews say, ain't it?' "'At least we say truly.' if we say so," answered the old man, with a smile. "'Your people need speak the truth sometimes, for they lie enough,' remarked Fascination Fledgeby. "'Sir, there is,' returned the old man, with quiet emphasis, 
too much untruth among all denominations of men. Rather dashed, Fascination Fredgeby took another scratch at his intellectual head with his hat, to gain time for rallying. "'For instance,' he resumed, as though it were he who had spoken last, "'who but you and I ever heard of a poor Jew?' "'The Jews,' said the old man, raising his eyes from the ground with his former smile, "'they hear of poor Jews often, and are very good to them.' "'Bother that!' returned Fledgeby. "'You know what I mean.' You'd persuade me, if you could, that you were a poor Jew. I wish you'd confess how much you really did make out of my late governor. I should have a better opinion of you." The old man only bent his head, and stretched out his hands as before. "'Don't go on posturing like a deaf and dumb school,' said the ingenious Fledgeby, "'and express yourself like a Christian, or as nearly as you can.' "'I had had sickness and misfortunes, and were so poor, said the old man, as hopelessly to owe the father principal and interest. The son inheriting was so merciful as to forgive me both, and place me here. He made a little gesture, as though he kissed the hem of an imaginary garment worn by the noble youth before him. It was humbly done, but picturesquely, and was not abasing to the doer. "'You won't say more, I see.' said Fledgeby, looking at him, as if he would like to try the effect of extracting a double tooth or two. "'And so it's of no use my putting it to you. But confess this, Ryer. Who believes you to be poor now?' "'No one,' said the old man. "'There, you're right,' assented Fledgeby. "'No one,' repeated the old man, with a grave, slow wave of his head, "'all scout it as a fable.' Were I to say, this little fancy business is not mine, with a lithe sweep of his easily turning hand around him to comprehend the various objects on the shelves, it is the little business of a Christian young gentleman who places me, his servant, in trust and charge here, and to whom I am accountable for every single bead. They would laugh. When, in the larger money business, I tell the borrowers— "'I say, old chap,' interposed Fledgeby, "'I hope you mind what you do tell em. "'Sir, I tell them no more than I am about to repeat. When I tell them I cannot promise this, I cannot answer for the other, I must see my principal. I have not the money. I am a poor man, and it does not rest with me. They are so unbelieving, and so impatient, that they sometimes curse me, in Jehovah's name." "'That's deuced good, that is,' said Fascination Fledgeby. "'And at other times they say, can it never be done without these tricks, Mr. Ryer? Come, come, Mr. Ryer, we know the arts of your people, my people. If the money is to be lent, fetch it, fetch it. If it is not to be lent, keep it, and say so. They never believe me." "'That's all right,' said Fascination Fledgeby. "'They say, we know, Mr. Ryer, we know. We have but to look at you, and we know.' 
"'Oh, a good un are you for the post,' thought Fledgeby, "'and a good un was I to mark you out for it. "'I may be slow, but I am precious sure.' Not a syllable of this reflection shaped itself at any scrap of Mr. Fledgeby's breath, lest it should tend to put his servant's price up. But looking at the old man as he stood quiet with his head bowed and his eyes cast down, he felt that to relinquish an inch of his baldness, an inch of his grey hair, an inch of his coat-skirt, an inch of his hat-brim, an inch of his walking-staff, would be to relinquish hundreds of pounds. "'Look here, Riah,' said Fledgeby, mollified by these self-approving considerations, "'I want to go a little more into buying up queer bills.' Look out in that direction. Sir, it shall be done. Casting my eye over the accounts, I find that branch of business pays pretty fairly, and I am game for extending it. I like to know people's affairs likewise. So look out. Sir, I will promptly. Put it about in the right quarters, that you'll buy queer bills by the lump, by the pound weight of that's all. Supposing you see your way to a fair chance on looking over the parcel. And there's one thing more. Come to me with the books for periodical inspection as usual at eight on Monday morning. Riah drew some folding tablets from his breast, and noted it down. That's all I wanted to say at the present time, continued Fledgeby, in a grudging vein, as he got off the stool. Except that I wish you'd take the air where you can hear the bell or the knocker. "'Either one of the two or both. "'By the by, how do you take the air at the top of the house? "'Do you stick your head out of a chimney-pot?' "'Sir, there are leads there, and I have made a little garden there. "'To bury your money in, you old dodger?' "'A thumbnail's space of garden would hold the treasure I bury, master,' said Riah. Twelve shillings a week.' even when they are an old man's wages, bury themselves. "'I should like to know what you really are worth,' returned Fledgeby, with whom his growing rich on that stipend and gratitude was a very convenient fiction. "'But come, let's have a look at your garden on the tiles before I go.' The old man took a step back, and hesitated. "'Truly, sir, I have company there.' "'Have you, by George?' said Fledgeby. "'I suppose you happen to know whose premises these are?' "'Sir, they are yours, and I am your servant in them.' "'Oh, I thought you might have overlooked that,' retorted Fledgeby, with his eyes on Riah's beard, as he felt for his own. "'Having company on my premises, you know?' "'Come up and see the guests, sir.' I hope for your admission that they can do no harm. Passing him with a courteous reverence, especially unlike any action that Mr. Fledgeby could for his life have imparted to his own head and hands, the old man began to ascend the stairs. As he toiled on before, with his palm upon the stair-rail, and his long black skirt, a very gabardine, overhanging each successive step, he might have been the leader in some pilgrimage of devotional ascent to a prophet's tomb. Not troubled by any such weak imagining, Fascination Fledgeby merely speculated on the time of life at which his beard had begun, and thought once more what a good un he was for the part. 
Some final wooden steps conducted them, stooping under a low penthouse roof, to the housetop. Raya stood still, and, turning to his master, pointed out his guests. Lizzie Hexham and Jenny Wren, for whom, perhaps, with some old instinct of his race, the gentle Jew had spread a carpet. Seated on it, against no more romantic object than a blackened chimney-stack, over which some bumble-creeper had been trained, they both pored over one book, both with attentive faces, Jenny with the sharper, Lizzie with the more perplexed. Another little book or two were lying near, and a common basket of common fruit, and another basket full of strings of beads and tinsel-scraps. A few boxes of humble flowers and evergreens completed the garden, and the encompassing wilderness of dowager old chimneys twirled their cowls, and fluttered their smoke, rather as if they were bridling and fanning themselves, and looking on in a state of airy surprise. Taking her eyes off the book, to test her memory of something in it, Lizzie was the first to see herself observed. As she rose, Miss Wren likewise became conscious, and said, irreverently addressing the great chief of the premises, "'Whoever you are, I can't get up, because my back's bad and my legs are queer.' "'This is my master,' said Raya, stepping forward. "'Don't look like anybody's master,' observed Miss Wren to herself, with a hitch of her chin and eyes. "'This, sir,' pursued the old man, "'is a little dressmaker for little people. "'Explain to the master, Jenny.' "'Dolls, that's all,' said Jenny shortly. "'Very difficult to fit to, because their figures are so uncertain. "'You never know where to expect their waists.' "'Her friend,' resumed the old man, motioning towards Lizzie, "'and as industrious as virtuous, but that they both are, they are busy early and late, sir, early and late, and in by times, as on this holiday, they go to book-learning. "'Not much good to be got out of that,' remarked Fledgeby. "'Depends upon the person,' quoth Miss Wren, snapping him up. "'I made acquaintance with my guests, sir,' pursued the Jew, with an evident purpose of drawing out the dressmaker, through their coming here to buy of our damage and waste for miss jenny's millinery our waste goes into the best of company sir on her rosy-cheeked little customers they wear it in their hair and on their ball dresses and even so she tells me are presented at court with it ah said fledgeby on whose intelligence this doll fancy made rather strong demands She's been buying that basketful today, I suppose. I suppose she has, Miss Jenny interposed, and paying for it too, most likely. Let's have a look at it, said the suspicious chief. Raya handed it to him. How much for this now? Two precious silver shillings, said Miss Wren. Raya confirmed her with two nods, as Fledgeby looked to him. A nod for each shilling. "'Well,' said Fledgeby, poking into the contents of the basket with his forefinger, "'the price is not so bad. You've got good measure, Miss—what is it?' "'Try, Jenny,' suggested that young lady, with great calmness. "'You've got good measure, Miss Jenny, but the price is not so bad. And you,' said Fledgeby, turning to the other visitor, "'do you buy anything here, Miss?' "'No, sir.' "'Nor sell anything neither, miss?' "'No, sir.' Looking askew at the questioner, 
Jenny stole her hand up to her friend's, and drew her friend down, so that she bent beside her on her knee. "'We are thankful to come here for rest, sir,' said Jenny. "'You see, you don't know what the rest of this place is to us. Does he, Lizzie? It's the quiet, and the air.' "'The quiet?' repeated Fledgeby, with a contemptuous turn of his head towards the city's roar. "'And the air, with a poof at the smoke. "'Ah,' said Jenny, "'but it's so high. "'And you see the clouds rushing on above the narrow streets, "'not minding them, "'and you see the golden arrows pointing at the mountains in the sky "'from which the wind comes, "'and you feel as if you were dead.' "'The little creature looked above her, "'holding up her slight transparent hand. "'How do you feel when you're dead?' "'asked Fledgeby, much perplexed. "'Oh, so tranquil!' cried the little creature, smiling. "'Oh, so peaceful and so thankful! And you hear the people who are alive, crying and working, and calling to one another down in the close dark streets, and you seem to pity them so! And such a chain has fallen from you, and such a strange good sorrowful happiness comes upon you!' Her eyes fell on the old man, who, with his hands folded, quietly looked on. "'Why, it was only just now!' said the little creature, pointing at him, that I fancied I saw him come out of his grave. He toiled out at that low door, so bent and worn, and then he took his breath and stood upright and looked all round him at the sky, and the wind blew upon him, and his life down in the dark was over, till he was called back to life, she added, looking round at Fledgeby with that lower look of sharpness. Why did you call him back? He was long enough coming, anyhow grumbled Fledgeby. "'But you were not dead, you know,' said Jenny Wren. "'Get down to life.' Mr. Fledgeby seemed to think it rather a good suggestion, and with a nod turned round. As Riah followed to attend him down the stairs, the little creature called out to the Jew in a silvery tone, "'Don't be long gone. Come back and be dead.' And still as they went down, they heard the little sweet voice more and more faintly, half calling and half singing, "'Come back and be dead! Come back and be dead!' When they got down into the entry, Fledgeby, pausing under the shadow of the broad old hat, and mechanically poising the staff, said to the old man, "'That's a handsome girl, at one in her senses.' "'And as good as handsome,' answered Riah. "'At all events,' observed Fledgeby, with a dry whistle. "'I hope she ain't bad enough to put any chap up to the fastenings, and get the premises broken open. You look out. Keep your weather-eye awake, and don't make any more acquaintances, however handsome. Of course, you always keep my name to yourself.' "'Sir, assuredly I do. If they ask it, say it's Pubsy, or say it's Co, or say it's anything you like, but what it is.' His grateful servant, in whose race gratitude is deep, strong, and enduring, bowed his head, and actually did now put the hem of his coat to his lips, though so lightly that the wearer knew nothing of it. Thus Fascination Fledgeby went his way, exulting in the artful cleverness with which he had turned his thumb down on a Jew, and the old man went his different way upstairs. As he mounted, the call or song began to sound in his ears again and, looking above, 
he saw the face of the little creature looking down out of a glory of her long, bright, radiant hair, and musically repeating to him, like a vision, "'Come up and be dead! Come up and be dead!' End of Book Two, Chapter Five Book Two, Chapter Six of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather, Chapter Six, Riddle Without an Answer. Again, Mr. Mortimer Lightwood and Mr. Eugene Rayburn sat together in the temple. This evening, however, they were not together in the place of business of the eminent solicitor, but in another dismal set of chambers facing it, on the same second floor, on whose dungeon-like black outer door appeared the legend, Private Mr. Eugene Rayburn, Mr. Mortimer Lightwood, Mr. Lightwood's offices opposite. Appearances indicated that this establishment was a very recent institution. The white letters of the inscription were extremely white, and extremely strong to the sense of smell. The complexion of the tables and chairs was, like Lady Tippins's, a little too blooming to be believed in, and the carpets and floor-cloth seemed to rush at the beholder's face, in the unusual prominency of their patterns. But the temple, accustomed to tone down both the still life and the human life that has much to do with it, would soon get the better of all that. "'Well,' said Eugene, on one side of the fire, "'I feel tolerably comfortable. I hope the upholsterer may do the same.' "'Why shouldn't he?' asked Lightwood from the other side of the fire. "'To be sure,' pursued Eugene, reflecting, "'he is not in the secret of our pecuniary affairs, so perhaps he may be in an easy frame of mind.' "'We shall pay him.' said Mortimer. "'Shall we, really?' returned Eugene, indolently surprised. "'You don't say so.' "'I mean to pay him, Eugene, for my part,' said Mortimer, in a slightly injured tone. "'Ah, I mean to pay him, too,' retorted Eugene. "'But then I mean so much that I—that I don't mean.' "'Don't mean?' "'So much that I only mean, and shall always only mean, and nothing more, my dear Mortimer. It's the same thing.' His friend, lying back in his easy chair, watched him lying back in his easy chair, as he stretched out his legs on the hearthrug, and said, with the amused look that Eugene Rayburn could always awaken in him, without seeming to try or care, "'Anyhow, your vagaries have increased the bill.' "'Calls the domestic virtues vagaries,' exclaimed Eugene, raising his eyes to the ceiling. "'This very complete little kitchen of ours,' said Mortimer, "'in which nothing will ever be cooked.' "'My dear, dear Mortimer,' returned his friend, lazily lifting his head a little to look at him, "'how often have I pointed out to you that its moral influence is the important thing?' "'It's moral influence on this fellow,' exclaimed Lightwood, laughing. "'Do me the favour, 
said Eugene, getting out of his chair with much gravity, to come and inspect that feature of our establishment which you rashly disparage. With that, taking up a candle, he conducted his chum into the fourth room of the set of chambers, a little narrow room, which was very completely and neatly fitted as a kitchen. "'See,' said Eugene, "'miniature flour-barrel, rolling-pin, spice-box, shelf of brown jars, chopping-board, coffee-mill, dresser elegantly furnished with crockery, saucepans and pans, roasting-jack, a charming kettle, an armoury of dish-covers.' The moral influence of these objects in forming the domestic virtues may have an immense influence upon me. Not upon you, for you are a hopeless case, but upon me. In fact, I have an idea that I feel the domestic virtues already forming. Do me the favour to step into my bedroom. Secretaire, you see. An abstruse set of solid mahogany pigeonholes, one for every letter of the alphabet. To what use do I devote them? I receive a bill, say, from Jones. I docket it neatly at the secretaire, Jones, and I put it into Pigeonhole J. It's the next thing to a receipt, and is quite as satisfactory to me. And I very much wish, Mortimer, sitting on his bed, with the air of a philosopher lecturing a disciple, that my example might induce you to cultivate habits of punctuality and method, and, by means of the moral influences with which I have surrounded you, to encourage the formation of the domestic virtues. Mortimer laughed again, with his usual commentaries of, How can you be so ridiculous, Eugene? And what an absurd fellow you are! But when his laugh was out, there was something serious, if not anxious, in his face. Despite that pernicious assumption of lassitude and indifference which had become his second nature, he was strongly attached to his friend. He had founded himself upon Eugene when they were yet boys at school, and at this hour imitated him no less, admired him no less, loved him no less, than in those departed days. "'Eugene,' said he, if I could find you in earnest for a minute, I would try to say an earnest word to you. An earnest word? repeated Eugene. The moral influences are beginning to work. Say on. Well, I will, returned the other, though you are not earnest yet. In this desire for earnestness, murmured Eugene with the air of one who was meditating deeply, I trace the happy influences of the little flour-barrel and the coffee-mill. Mm, gratifying. Eugene, resumed Mortimer, disregarding the light interruption, and laying a hand upon Eugene's shoulder as he, Mortimer, stood before him, seated on his bed, you are withholding something from me. Eugene looked at him, but said nothing. All this past summer you have been withholding something from me. Before we entered on our boating vacation, you were as bent upon it as I have seen you upon anything since we first rode together. But you cared very little for it when it came, often found it a tie and a drag upon you, and were constantly away. Now, it was well enough half a dozen times, a dozen times, twenty times, to say to me in your own odd manner, which I know so well and like so much, that your disappearances were precautions against our boring one another. But— of course, after a short while I began to know that they covered something. 
I don't ask what it is, as you have not told me, but the fact is so. Say, is it not? I give you my word of honour, Mortimer, returned Eugene, after a serious pause of a few moments, that I don't know. Don't know, Eugene? Upon my soul, don't know. I know less about myself than about most people in the world, and I don't know. You have some design in your mind? Have I? I don't think I have. At any rate, you have some subject of interest there which used not to be there. I really can't say, replied Eugene, shaking his head blankly, after pausing again to reconsider. At times I have thought, yes. At other times I have thought, no. Now, I have been inclined to pursue such a subject. Now I have felt that it was absurd, and that it tired and embarrassed me. Absolutely, I can't say. Frankly and faithfully, I would, if I could. So replying, he clapped a hand, in his turn, on his friend's shoulder, as he rose from his seat upon the bed, and said, You must take your friend as he is. You know what I am, my dear Mortimer. You know how dreadfully susceptible I am to boredom. You know that when I became enough of a man to find myself an embodied conundrum, I bored myself to the last degree by trying to find out what I meant. You know that at length I gave it up, and declined to guess any more. Then how can I possibly give you the answer that I have not discovered? The old nursery form runs, Riddle me, riddle me, re. Perhaps you can't tell me what this may be. My reply runs, No, upon my life I can't. So much of what was fantastically true to his own knowledge of this utterly careless Eugene, mingled with the answer, that Mortimer could not receive it as a mere evasion. Besides, it was given with an engaging air of openness, and of special exemption of the one friend he valued, from his reckless indifference. "'Come, dear boy,' said Eugene, "'let us try the effect of smoking. If it enlightens me at all on this question, I will impart unreservedly.' They returned to the room they had come from, and finding it heated, opened a window. Having lighted their cigars, they leaned out of this window, smoking, and looking down at the moonlight, as it shone into the court below. Mm, "'No enlightenment,' resumed Eugene, after certain minutes of silence. "'I feel sincerely apologetic, my dear Mortimer, but nothing comes.' "'If nothing comes,' returned Mortimer, "'nothing can come from it. So I shall hope that this may hold good throughout, and that there may be nothing on foot.' nothing injurious to you, Eugene, or—' Eugene stayed him for a moment with his hand on his arm, while he took a piece of earth from an old flower-pot on the window-sill, and dexterously shot it at a little point of light opposite, having done which, to his satisfaction, he said, "'Or—' "'Or injurious to any one else.' "'How?' said Eugene, taking another little piece of earth, and shooting it with great precision at the former mark. How injurious to any one else? I don't know. And, said Eugene, taking, as he said the word, another shot, to whom else? I don't know. Checking himself with another piece of earth in his hand, 
Eugene looked at his friend inquiringly, and a little suspiciously. There was no concealed or half-expressed meaning in his face. Two belated wanderers in the mazes of the law,' said Eugene, attracted by the sound of footsteps, and glancing down as he spoke, "'stray into the court. They examine the doorposts of number one, seeking the name they want. Not finding it at number one, they come to number two. On the hat of wanderer number two, the shorter one, I drop this pellet. Hitting him on the hat, I smoke serenely, and become absorbed in contemplation of the sky. Both the wanderers looked up towards the window, but, after interchanging a mutter or two, soon applied themselves to the doorposts below. There they seemed to discover what they wanted, for they disappeared from view by entering at the doorway. "'When they emerge,' said Eugene, "'you shall see me bring them both down,' and so prepared two pellets for the purpose. He had not reckoned on their seeking his name or Lightwood's, but either the one or the other would seem to be in question, for now there came a knock at the door. "'I am on duty to-night,' said Mortimer. "'Stay you where you are, Eugene.' Requiring no persuasion, he stayed there, smoking quietly, and not at all curious to know who knocked, until Mortimer spoke to him from within the room, and touched him. Then, drawing in his head, he found the visitors to be young Charlie Hexham and the schoolmaster, both standing facing him, and both recognised at a glance. "'You recollect this young fellow, Eugene?' said Mortimer. "'Let me uh, look at him,' returned Rayburn coolly. "'Oh, yes, yes, I recollect him.' He had not been about to repeat that former action of taking him by the chin, but the boy had suspected him of it and had thrown up his arm with an angry start. Laughingly, Rayburn looked to Lightwood for an explanation of this odd visit. "'He says he has something to say. Surely it must be to you, Mortimer.' "'So I thought. But he says no. He says it is to you.' "'Yes, I do say so,' interposed the boy. "'And I mean to say what I want to say, too, Mr. Eugene Rayburn.' Passing him with his eyes, as if there were nothing where he stood, Eugene looked on to Bradley Headstone. With consummate indolence, he turned to Mortimer, inquiring, "'And uh, who may this other person be?' "'I am Charles Hexham's friend,' said Bradley. "'I am Charles Hexham's schoolmaster.' "'My good sir, you should teach your pupils better manners,' returned Eugene. Composedly smoking, he leaned an elbow on the chimney-piece at the side of the fire, and looked at the schoolmaster. It was a cruel look, in its cold disdain of him, as a creature of no worth. The schoolmaster looked at him, and that, too, was a cruel look, though of the different kind, that it had a raging jealousy and fiery wrath in it. Very remarkably, neither Eugene Rayburn nor Bradley Headstone looked at all at the boy. Through the ensuing dialogue, those two, no matter who spoke or whom was addressed, looked at each other. There was some secret, sure perception between them, which set them against one another in all ways. "'In some high respects, Mr. Eugene Rayburn,' said Bradley, answering him with pale and quivering lips, "'the natural feelings of my pupils are stronger than my teaching.' 
"'In most respect, I dare say,' replied Eugene, enjoying his cigar, "'though whether high or low is of no importance. You have my name very correctly. Pray, what is yours?' "'It cannot concern you much to know, but—' "'True,' interposed Eugene, striking sharply and cutting him short at his mistake. "'It does not concern me at all to know.' I can say, schoolmaster, which is a most respectable title. You are right, schoolmaster. It was not the dullest part of this goad in its galling of Bradley Headstone, that he had made it himself in a moment of incautious anger. He tried to set his lips so as to prevent their quivering, but they quivered fast. "'Mr. Eugene Rayburn,' said the boy, "'I want a word with you.' I have wanted it so much, and we have looked out your address in the book, and we have been to your office, and we have come from your office here. You have given yourself much trouble, schoolmaster, observed Eugene, blowing the feathery ash from his cigar. I hope it may prove remunerative. And I am glad to speak, pursued the boy, in presence of Mr. Lightwood, because it was through Mr. Lightwood that you ever saw my sister. For a mere moment Rayburn turned his eyes aside from the schoolmaster to note the effect of the last word on Mortimer, who, standing on the opposite side of the fire, as soon as the word was spoken, turned his face towards the fire, and looked down into it. "'Similarly, it was through Mr. Lightwood that you ever saw her again, for you were with him on the night when my father was found, and so I found you with her on the next day. Since then you have seen my sister often.' "'You have seen my sister oftener and oftener, and I want to know why.' "'Was this worth while, schoolmaster?' murmured Eugene, with the air of a disinterested adviser. "'So much trouble for nothing. You should know best, but I think not.' "'I don't know, Mr. Rayburn,' answered Bradley, with his passion rising, "'why you address me, don't you?' said Eugene, then I won't. He said it so tauntingly, in his perfect placidity, that the respectable right hand clutching, the respectable hair-guard of the respectable watch, could have wound it round his throat and strangled him with it. Not another word did Eugene deem it worth while to utter, but stood leaning his head upon his hand, smoking and looking imperturbably at the chafing Bradley headstone with his clutching right hand, until Bradley was well-nigh mad. "'Mr. Rayburn,' proceeded the boy, "'we not only know this, that I have charged upon you, but we know more. It has not yet come to my sister's knowledge that we have found it out, but we have. We had a plan, Mr. Edstone and I, for my sister's education, and for its being advised and overlooked by Mr. Edstone, who is a much more competent authority, whatever you may pretend to think, as you smoke, than you could produce if you tried. Then—' What do we find? What do we find, Mr. Lightwood? Why, we find that my sister is already being taught, without our knowing it. We find that while my sister gives an unwilling and cold ear to our schemes for her advantage, I, her brother, and Mr. Headstone, the most competent authority, as his certificates would easily prove, that could be produced, she is wilfully and willingly profiting by other schemes. I and taking pains, too, for I know what such pains are, and so does Mr. Headstone. Well, 
"'Somebody pays for this, is a thought that naturally occurs to us. "'Who pays? "'We apply ourselves to find out, Mr. Lightwood, "'and we find that your friend, this Mr. Eugene Rayburn here, pays. "'Then I ask him, what right has he to do it, "'and what does he mean by it, "'and how comes he to be taking such a liberty without my consent?' when I am raising myself in a scale of society by my own exertions and Mr. Headstone's aid, and have no right to have any darkness cast upon my prospects, or any imputation upon my respectability through my sister. The boyish weakness of this speech, combined with its great selfishness, made it a poor one indeed. And yet Bradley Headstone, used to the little audience of a school, and unused to the larger ways of men, showed a kind of exultation in it. "'Now, I tell Mr. Eugene Rayburn,' pursued the boy, forced into the use of the third person, by the hopelessness of addressing him in the first, "'that I object to his having any acquaintance at all with my sister, and that I request him to drop it altogether. He is not to take it into his head that I am afraid of my sister's caring for him.' As the boy sneered, the master sneered, and Eugene blew off the feathery ash again. "'But I object to it, and that's enough. "'I am more important to my sister than he thinks. "'As I raise myself, I intend to raise her. "'She knows that, and she has to look to me for her prospects. "'Now, I understand all this very well, and so does Mr. Edstone. "'My sister is an excellent girl, "'but she has some romantic notions, "'not about such things as your Mr. Eugene Rayburn's, "'but about the death of my father and other matters of that sort.' "'Mr. Rayburn encourages those notions to make himself of importance, "'and so she thinks she ought to be grateful to him, "'and perhaps even likes to be. "'Now I don't choose her to be grateful to him, "'or to be grateful to anybody but me, except Mr. Edstone. "'And I tell Mr. Rayburn that if he don't take heed of what I say, "'it will be worse for her. "'Let him turn that over in his memory, and make sure of it. "'Worse for her.' A pause ensued, in which the schoolmaster looked very awkward. "'May I suggest, schoolmaster,' said Eugene, removing his fast-waning cigar from his lips to glance at it, "'that you can now take your pupil away.' "'And, Mr. Lightwood,' added the boy, with a burning face, under the flaming aggravation of getting no sort of answer or attention. "'I hope you'll take notice of what I said to your friend, and of what your friend has heard me say, word by word, whatever he pretends to the contrary. You are bound to take notice of it, Mr. Lightwood, for, as I have already mentioned, you first brought your friend into my sister's company, and but for you we never should have seen him. Lord knows none of us ever wanted him, any more than any of us will ever miss him. Now, Mr. Edstone—' "'as Mr. Eugene Rayburn has been obliged to hear what I had to say, "'and couldn't help himself, and as I have said it out to the last word, "'we have done all we wanted to do, and may go.' "'Go downstairs, and leave me a moment, Hexham,' he returned. "'The boy, complying with an indignant look, and as much noise as he could make, "'swung out of the room, and Lightwood went to the window, and leaned there, looking out. "'You think me of no more value than the dirt under your feet?' said Bradley to Eugene, speaking in a carefully weighed and measured tone, or he could not have spoken at all. "'I assure you, schoolmaster,' replied Eugene, "'I don't think about you.' "'That's not true,' returned the other. "'You know better.' 
"'That's coarse,' Eugene retorted. "'But you don't know better. "'Mr. Rayburn, at least I know very well "'that it would be idle to set myself against you "'in insolent words or overbearing manners. "'That lad, who has just gone out, "'could put you to shame in half a dozen branches "'of knowledge in half an hour. "'But you can throw him aside like an inferior. "'You can do as much by me, I have no doubt, beforehand.' "'Possibly,' remarked Eugene. "'But I am more than a lad,' said Bradley, with his clutching hand. "'And I will be heard, sir.' "'As a schoolmaster,' said Eugene, "'you are always being heard. "'That ought to content you.' "'But it does not content me.' replied the other, white with passion. "'Do you suppose that a man, informing himself for the duties I discharge, and in watching and repressing himself daily to discharge them well, dismisses a man's nature?' "'I suppose you,' said Eugene, "'judging from what I see as I look at you, to be rather too passionate for a good schoolmaster.' As he spoke, he tossed away the end of his cigar. "'Passionate with you, sir, I admit I am. "'Passionate with you, sir, I respect myself for being, "'but I have not devils for my pupils.' "'For your teachers, I should rather say,' replied Eugene. "'Mr. Rayburn, a schoolmaster. "'Sir, my name is Bradley Headstone. "'As you justly said, my good sir, your name cannot concern me. "'Now, what more?' "'This more! Oh, what a misfortune is mine!' cried Bradley, breaking off to wipe the starting perspiration from his face, as he shook from head to foot, "'that I cannot so control myself as to appear a stronger creature than this, when a man who has not felt in all his life what I have felt in a day can so command himself.' He said it in a very agony, and even followed it with an errant motion of his hands, as if he could have torn himself. Eugene Rayburn looked on at him, as if he found him beginning to be rather an entertaining study. "'Mr. Rayburn, I desire to say something to you on my own part.' "'Come, come, schoolmaster,' returned Eugene, with a languid approach to impatience, as the other again struggled with himself. "'Say what you have to say, and let me remind you that the door is standing open, and your young friend waiting for you on the stairs.' "'When I accompanied that youth here, sir, I did so with the purpose of adding, as a man whom you should not be permitted to put aside, in case you put him aside as a boy, that his instinct is correct and right.' Thus Bradley Headstone, with great effort and difficulty. "'Is that all?' asked Eugene. "'No, sir,' said the other flushed and fierce. I strongly support him in his disapproval of your visits to his sister, and in his objection to your officiousness, and worse, in what you have taken upon yourself to do for her. Is that all? asked Eugene. No, sir. I determined to tell you that you are not justified in these proceedings, and that they are injurious to his sister. Are you her schoolmaster? as well as her brother's? Or perhaps you would like to be," said Eugene. It was a stab that the blood followed, in its rush to Bradley Headstone's face, as swiftly as if it had been dealt with a dagger. "'What do you mean by that?' 
was as much as he could utter. "'A natural ambition enough,' said Eugene, coolly. "'Far be it from me to say otherwise. The sister, who is something too much upon your lips, perhaps, is so very different from all the associations to which she had been used, and from all the low, obscure people about her, that it is a very natural ambition.' "'Do you throw my obscurity in my teeth, Mr. Rayburn?' "'That can hardly be, for I know nothing concerning it, schoolmaster, and seek to know nothing.' "'You reproach me with my origin,' said Bradley Headstone. "'You cast insinuations at my bringing up. But I tell you, sir, I have worked my way onward, out of both, and in spite of both, and have a right to be considered a better man than you, with better reasons for being proud.' How I can reproach you with what is not within my knowledge, or how I can cast stones that were never in my hand, is a problem for the ingenuity of a schoolmaster to prove, returned Eugene. Is that all? No, sir. If you suppose that boy, who really will be tired of waiting— said Eugene, politely. "'If you suppose that boy to be friendless, Mr. Rayburn, you deceive yourself. I am his friend, and you shall find me so.' "'And you will find him on the stairs,' remarked Eugene. "'You may have promised yourself, sir, that you could do what you chose here, because you had to deal with a mere boy, inexperienced, friendless, and unassisted, but I give you warning that this mean calculation is wrong. You have to do with a man, also. You have to do with me. I will support him, and, if need be, require reparation for him. My hand and heart are in this cause, and are open to him.' "'And, quite a coincidence, the door is open,' remarked Eugene. "'I scorn your shifty evasions, and I scorn you,' said the schoolmaster. "'In the meanness of your nature, you revile me with the meanness of my birth. I hold you in contempt for it. If you don't profit by this visit, and act accordingly, you will find me as bitterly in earnest against you as I could be, if I deemed you worth a second thought on my own account." With a consciously bad grace and stiff manner, as Rayburn looked so easily and calmly on, he went out with these words, and the heavy door closed like a furnace door upon his red and white heats of rage. "'A curious monomaniac,' said Eugene. The man seems to believe that everybody was acquainted with his mother. Mortimer Lightwood being still at the window, to which he had in delicacy withdrawn, Eugene called to him, and he fell to slowly pacing the room. "'My dear fellow,' said Eugene, as he lighted another cigar, "'I fear my unexpected visitors have been troublesome. If, as a set-off—' excuse the legal phrase from a barrister at law, you would like to ask Tippins to tea, I pledge myself to make love to her. Eugene, 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 replied Mortimer, still pacing the room, I am sorry for this, and to think that I have been so blind. How blind, dear boy? inquired his unmoved friend. What were your words that night at the Riverside Public House? said Lightwood, stopping. What was it that you asked me? Did I feel like a dark combination of traitor and pickpocket when I thought of that girl? 
I seem to remember the expression,' said Eugene. "'How do you feel when you think of her just now?' His friend made no direct reply, but observed, after a few whiffs of his cigar, "'Don't mistake the situation. There is no better girl in all this London than Lizzie Hexham. There is no better among my people at home, no better among your people. Granted, what follows?' "'There,' said Eugene, looking after him dubiously, as he paced away to the other end of the room. "'You put me again upon guessing the riddle that I have given up.' "'Eugene, do you design to capture and desert this girl?' "'My dear fellow, no.' "'Do you design to marry her?' "'My dear fellow, no.' "'Do you design to pursue her?' "'My dear fellow, I don't design anything. I have no design whatever.' I am incapable of designs. If I conceive a design, I should speedily abandon it, exhausted by the operation. Oh, Eugene, Eugene! My dear Mortimer, not that tone of melancholy reproach, I entreat. What can I do more than tell you all I know, and acknowledge my ignorance of all I don't know? How does that little old song go, which, under pretense of being cheerful, is by far the most lugubrious I ever heard in my life. Away with melancholy, nor doleful changes ring, On life and human folly, but merrily, merrily sing, Fa-la. Don't let us sing Fa-la, my dear Mortimer, which is comparatively unmeaning, But let us sing that we give up guessing the riddle altogether. Are you in communication with this girl, Eugene? And is what these people say true? I concede both admissions to my honourable and learned friend. Then what is to become of it? What are you doing? Where are you going? My dear Mortimer, one would think the schoolmaster had left behind him a catechising infection. You are ruffled by the want of another cigar. Take one of these, I entreat. Light it at mine, which is in perfect order. So. Now do me the justice to observe that I am doing all I can towards self-improvement, and that you have a light thrown on those household implements which, when you only saw them as in a glass darkly, you were hastily, I must say hastily, inclined to depreciate. Sensible of my deficiencies, I have surrounded myself with moral influences expressly meant to promote the formation of the domestic virtues. To those influences, and to the improving society of my friend from boyhood, commend me with your best wishes. Ah, Eugene, said Lightwood, affectionately, now standing near him, so that they both stood in one little cloud of smoke. I would that you answered my three questions. What is to come of it? What are you doing? Where are you going? And, my dear Mortimer, returned Eugene, lightly fanning away the smoke with his hand for the better exposition of his frankness of face and manner, believe me, I would answer them instantly, if I could. But to enable me to do so, I must first have found out the troublesome conundrum long abandoned. Here it is. Eugene Rayburn, tapping his forehead and breast. Riddle me, riddle me re. Perhaps you can't tell me what this may be. No, 
Upon my life I can't. I give it up. End of Book Two, Chapter Six Book Two, Chapter Seven of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather. Chapter Seven, in which a friendly move is originated. The arrangement between Mr. Boffin and his literary man, Mr. Silas Wegg, so far altered with the altered habits of mr boffin's life as that the roman empire usually declined in the morning and in the eminently aristocratic family mansion rather than in the evening as of yore and in boffin's bower there were occasions however when mr boffin seeking a brief refuge from the blandishments of fashion would present himself at the bower after dark to anticipate the next sallying forth of wegg and would there on the old settle pursue the downward fortunes of those enervated and corrupted masters of the world who were by this time on their last legs if wegg had been worse paid for his office or better qualified to discharge it he would have considered these visits complimentary and agreeable but holding the position of a handsomely remunerated humbug he resented them this was quite according to rule for the incompetent servant by whomsoever employed is always against his employer even those born governors noble and right honourable creatures who have been the most imbecile in high places have uniformly shown themselves the most opposed sometimes in belying distrust sometimes in vapid insolence to their employer what is in such wise true of the public master and servant is equally true of the private master and servant all the world over when mr silas wegg did at last obtain free access to our house as he had been wont to call the mansion outside which he had sat shelterless so long and when he did at last find it in all particulars as different from his mental plans of it as according to the nature of things it well could be that far-seeing and far-reaching character by way of asserting himself and making out a case for compensation affected to fall into a melancholy strain of musing over the mournful past as if the house and he had had a fall in life together. "'And this, sir,' Silas would say to his patron, sadly nodding his head and musing, "'was once our house. This, sir, is the building from which I have so often seen those great creatures, Miss Elizabeth, Master George, Aunt Jane, and Uncle Parker, whose very names were of his own inventing, pass and repass.' And has it come to this indeed? Ah, oh, dear me, dear me! So tender were his lamentations, that the kindly Mr. Boffin was quite sorry for him, and almost felt mistrustful that in buying the house he had done him an irreparable injury. Two or three diplomatic interviews, the result of great subtlety on Mr. Wegg's part, but assuming the mask of careless yielding to a fortuitous combination of circumstances impelling him towards Clerkenwell, had enabled him to complete his bargain with Mr. Venus. "'Bring me round to the bower,' said Silas, when the bargain was closed, "'next Saturday evening, and if a sociable glass of old Jamaiky warm should meet your views.' 
I'm not the man to begrudge it. "'You are aware of my being poor company, sir,' replied Mr. Venus. "'But be it so.' It being so, here is Saturday evening come, and here is Mr. Venus come, and ringing at the bower gate. Mr. Wegg opens the gate, describes a sort of brown paper truncheon under Mr. Venus's arm, and remarks in a dry tone, "'Oh, I thought perhaps you might have come in a cab.' "'No, Mr. Wegg,' replies Venus, "'I am not above a parcel.' "'Above a parcel, no,' says Wegg, with some dissatisfaction, but does not openly growl. "'A certain sort of parcel might be above you.' "'Here is your purchase, Mr. Wegg.' says Venus, politely handing it over, "'and I am glad to restore it to the source from whence it uh, flowed.' "'Thank ye,' says Wegg. "'Now, this affair is concluded. I may mention to you in a friendly way that I've my doubts whether, if I had consulted a lawyer, you could have kept this article back from me. I only throw it out as a legal point.' "'Do you think so, Mr. Wegg?' I bought you an open contract. You can't buy human flesh and blood in this country, sir. Not alive, you can't, says Wegg, shaking his head. Then query bone. As a legal point, asks Venus, as a legal point. I am not competent to speak upon that, Mr. Wegg, says Venus, reddening and growing something louder. But upon a point of fact I think myself competent to speak, and as a point of fact I would have seen you. Will you allow me to say further?' "'I wouldn't say more than further if I was you,' Mr. Wegg suggests, pacifically. "'Before I'd have given that packet into your hand without being paid my price for it. I don't pretend to know how the point of law may stand, but I'm thoroughly confident.' upon the point of fact. As Mr. Venus is irritable, no doubt owing to his disappointment in love, and as it is not the cue of Mr. Wegg to have him out of temper, the latter gentleman soothingly remarks, "'I only put it as a little case. I only put it hypothetically.' "'Then I'd rather, Mr. Wegg, you put it another time penathetically,' is Mr. Venus's retort. "'for I tell you candidly I don't like your little cases.' Arrived by this time in Mr. Wegg's sitting-room, made bright on the chilly evening by gaslight and fire, Mr. Venus softens and compliments him on his abode, profiting by the occasion to remind Wegg that he, Venus, told him he had got into a good thing. "'Tolerable,' Wegg rejoins, "'but bear in mind, Mr. Venus, that there's no gold without its alloy.' Mix for yourself, and take a seat in the chimbley-corner. Will you perform upon a pipe, sir?' "'I am but an indifferent performer, sir,' returns the other, "'but I'll accompany you with a whiff or two at intervals.' So Mr. Venus mixes, and Wegg mixes, and Mr. Venus lights and puffs, and Mr. Wegg lights and puffs. "'And there's alloy even in this metal of yours, Mr. Wegg, you was remarking?' "'Mystery,' returns Wegg. "'I don't like it, Mr. Venus. 
I don't like to have the life knocked out of former inhabitants of this house in the gloomy dark, and not know who did it. Might you have any suspicions, Mr. Wegg? No, returns that gentleman. I know who profits by it, but I've no suspicions. Having said which, Mr. Wegg smokes and looks at the fire with a most determined expression of charity, as if he had caught that cardinal virtue by the skirts, as she felt it her painful duty to depart from him, and held her by main force. "'Similarly,' resumes Wegg, "'I have observations, as I can offer upon certain points and parties, but I make no objections, Mr. Venus. Here is an immense fortune, drops from the clouds, upon a person that shall be nameless. Here is a weekly allowance, with a certain weight of coals, drops from the clouds, upon me. Which of us is the better man? Not the person that shall be nameless.' That's an observation of mine, but I don't make it an objection. I take my allowance, and my certain weight of coals. He takes his fortune. That's the way it works. It would be a good thing for me if I could see things in the calm light you do, Mr. Wegg. Again, look here, pursues Silas, with an oratorical flourish of his pipe in his wooden leg, the latter having an undignified tendency to tilt him back in his chair. Here's another observation, Mr. Venus, unaccompanied with an objection. Him that shall be nameless is liable to be talked over. He gets talked over. Him that shall be nameless, having me at his right hand, naturally looking to be promoted higher, and you may perhaps say meriting to be promoted higher. Mr. Venus murmurs that he does say so. Him that shall be nameless, under such circumstances, "'passes me by, and puts a talking over stranger above my head. "'Which of us two is the better man? "'Which of us two can repeat most poetry? "'Which of us two has, in the service of him that shall be nameless, "'tackled the Romans, both civil and military, "'till he has got as husky as if he'd been weaned "'and ever since brought up on sawdust? "'Not the talking over stranger. "'Yet the house is as free to him as if it was his, "'and he has his room, and is put upon a footing.' and draws about a thousand a year. I am banished to the bower, to be found in it like a piece of furniture whenever wanted. Merit, therefore, don't win. That's the way it works. Observe it, because I can't help observing it, being accustomed to take a powerful sight of notice. But I don't object. Ever here before, Mr. Venus? Not inside the gate, Mr. Wegg. You've been as far as the gate, then, Mr. Venus? Yes, Mr. Wegg and peeped in from curiosity. Did you see anything? Nothing but the dust-yard. Mr. Wegg rolls his eyes all round the room in that ever unsatisfied quest of his, and then rolls his eyes all round Mr. Venus, as if suspicious of his having something about him to be found out. And yet, sir, he pursues, being acquainted with old Mr. Harmon, one would have thought it might have been polite in ye too to give him a call. "'And you're naturally of a polite disposition, you are.' This last clause as, as a softening compliment to Mr. Venus. "'It is true, sir,' replies Venus, winking his weak eyes, and running his fingers through his dusty shock of hair, "'that I was so before a certain observation soured me. You understand to what I allude, Mr. Wegg? To a certain written statement respecting not wishing to be regarded in a certain light. Since that, all is fled save gall. Not all, 
says Mr. Wegg, in a tone of sentimental condolence. "'Yes, sir,' returns Venus. "'All. The world may deem it harsh, but I'd quite as soon pitch into my best friend as not. Indeed, I'd sooner.' Involuntarily making a pass with his wooden leg to guard himself, as Mr. Venus springs up in the emphasis of this unsociable declaration, Mr. Wegg tilts over on his back, chair and all, and is rescued by that harmless misanthrope in a disjointed state and ruefully rubbing his head. "'Why, you lost your balance, Mr. Wegg,' says Venus, handing him his pipe. "'And about time to do it,' grumbles Silas, "'when a man's visitors—' without a word of notice, conduct themselves with the sudden wishesness of jacks in boxes. Don't come flying out of your chair like that, Mr. Venus. Ask your pardon, Mr. Wegg. I'm so soured. Yes, but hang it, says Wegg, argumentatively. A well-governed mind can be soured sitting. And as to being regarded in lights, there's bumpy lights as well as bony. In which— again rubbing his head, I object to regard myself. "'I'll bear it in memory, sir, if you be so good.' Mr. Wegg slowly subdues his ironical tone and his lingering irritation, and resumes his pipe. "'We were talking of old Mr. Harmon being a friend of yours.' "'Not a friend, Mr. Wegg. Only known to speak to, and to have a little deal with now and then. A very inquisitive character, Mr. Wegg, regarding what was found in the dust, as inquisitive as secret. "'Ah, you found him secret?' returns Wegg, with a greedy relish. "'He had always the look of it and the manner of it.' "'Ah!' with another roll of his eyes. "'As to what was found in the dust now, did you ever hear him mention how he found it, my dear friend?' "'Living on the mysterious premises, one would like to know, for instance, where he found things, or, for instance, how he set about it, whether he began at the top of the mounds, or whether he began at the bottom, whether he prodded—' Mr. Wegg's pantomime is skilful and expressive here—or whether he scooped. Should you say, scooped, my dear Mr. Venus, or should you, as a man, say, prodded?' "'I should say neither, Mr. Wegg.' "'As a fellow-man, Mr. Venus, mix again. Why neither?' "'Because I suppose, sir, that what was found was found in the sorting and sifting. All the mounds are sorted and sifted. You shall see him and pass your opinion. Mix again.' On each occasion of his saying, "'Mix again,' Mr. Wegg, with a hop on his wooden leg, hitches his chair a little nearer more as if he were proposing that himself and Mr. Venus should mix again than that they should replenish their glasses. "'Living, as I said before, on the mysterious premises,' says Wegg, when the other has acted on his hospitable entreaty, "'one likes to know. Would you be inclined to say now, as a brother, that he ever hid things in the dust, as well as found him?' "'Mr. Wegg, on the whole, I should say he might.' Mr. Wegg claps on his spectacles, and admiringly surveys Mr. Venus from head to foot. "'As a mortal, equally with myself, whose hand I take in mine for the first time this day, having unaccountably overlooked that act so full of boundless confidence binding a fellow-creature to a fellow-creature,' says Wegg, 
holding Mr. Venus's palm out, flat and ready for smiting, and now smiting it, "'as such, and no other, for I scorn all lowlier ties betwixt myself and the man walking with his face erect, that alone I call me twin, regarded and regarding in this trustful bond, what do you think he might have hid?' "'It is but a supposition, Mr. Wegg.' "'As a being with his hand upon his heart,' cries Wegg, and the apostrophe is not the less impressive for the being's hand being actually upon his rum and water. "'Put your supposition into language, and bring it out, Mr. Venus.' "'He was the species of old gentleman, sir,' slowly returns that practical anatomist, after drinking, "'that I should judge likely to take such opportunities as this place offered of stowing away money, valuables, maybe papers.' "'As one that was ever an ornament to human life,' says Mr. Wegg, again holding out Mr. Venus's palm, as if he were going to tell his fortune by chiromancy, and holding his own up ready for smiting it when the time should come. "'As one that the poet might have had his eye on in writing the national naval words, "'Helm a weather, now lay her close, yard-arm and yard-arm she lies. "'Again,' cried I, Mr. Venus, "'give her t'other doze, man-shrouds and grapples her, or she flies.' "'That is to say, regarded in the light of true British oak, or such you are, "'explain, Mr. Venus, the expression, papers.' Seeing that the old gentleman was generally cutting off some near relation, or blocking out some natural affection, Mr. Venus rejoins, he most likely made a good many wills and codicils. The palm of Silas Wegg descends with a sounding smack upon the palm of Venus, and Wegg lavishly exclaims, "'Twin, in opinion equally with feeling, mix a little more!' Having now hitched his wooden leg and his chair close in front of Mr. Venus, Mr. Wegg rapidly mixes for both, gives his visitor his glass, touches its rim with the rim of his own, puts his own to his lips, puts it down, and spreading his hands on his visitor's knees, thus addresses him. "'Mr. Venus, it ain't that I object to being passed over for a stranger, though I regard the stranger as more than doubtful customer. It ain't for the sake of making money, though money is ever welcome.' It ain't for myself, though I'm not so haughty as to be above doing myself a good turn. It's for the cause of the right. Mr. Venus, passively winking his weak eyes both at once, demands, What is, Mr. Wegg? The friendly move, sir, that I now propose. You see the move, sir? Till you have pointed it out, Mr. Wegg, I can't say whether I do or not. "'If there is anything to be found on these premises, let us find it together. "'Let us make the friendly move of agreeing to look for it together. "'Let us make the friendly move of agreeing to share the profits of it equally betwixt us, "'in the cause of right,' thus Silas, assuming a noble air. "'Then,' says Mr. Venus, looking up, after meditating with his hair held in his hands, as if he could only fix his attention by fixing his head. If anything was to be unburied from under the dust, it would be kept a secret by you and me. Would that be it, Mr. Wegg? 
"'That would depend upon what it was, Mr. Venus. "'Say it was money, or plate, or jewellery, "'it would be as much ours as anybody else's.' "'Mr. Venus rubs an eyebrow interrogatively. "'In the cause of the right, it would, "'because it would be unknowingly sold with the mounds else, "'and the buyer would get what he was never meant to have and never bought. "'And what would that be, Mr. Venus, but the cause of the wrong?' "'Say it was papers,' Mr. Venus propounds. "'According to what they contained, "'we should offer to dispose of them to the parties most interested,' "'replies Wegg promptly. "'In the cause of right, Mr. Wegg?' "'Always so, Mr. Venus. "'If the parties should use them in the cause of the wrong, "'that would be their act indeed. "'Mr. Venus, I have an opinion of you, sir, "'to which it is not easy to give mouth.' "'Since I called upon you that evening, when you were, as I may say, "'floating your powerful mind in tea, "'I have felt that you required to be roused with an object. "'In this friendly move, sir, you will have a glorious object to rouse you.' Mr. Wegg then goes on to enlarge upon what throughout has been uppermost in his crafty mind, the qualifications of Mr. Venus for such a search. He expatiates on Mr. Venus's patient habits and delicate manipulation, on his skill in piecing little things together, on his knowledge of various tissues and textures, on the likelihood of small indications leading him on to the discovery of great concealments. "'While, as to myself,' says Wegg, "'I'm not good at it, whether I gave myself up to prodding, or whether I gave myself up to scooping.' I couldn't do it with that delicate touch, so as not to show that I was disturbing the mounds. Quite different with you. Going to work, as you would, in the light of a fellow man, wholly pledged in a friendly move to his brother man. Mr. Wegg next modestly remarks on the want of adaptation in a wooden leg to ladders and such-like airy perches, and also hints at an inherent tendency in that timber fiction, when called into action for the purposes of a promenade on an ashy slope, to stick itself into the yielding foothold and peg its owner to one spot. Then, leaving this part of the subject, he remarks on the special phenomenon that before his installation in the bower it was from Mr. Venus that he first heard of the legend of hidden wealth in the mounds, which, he observes with a vaguely pious air, was surely never meant for nothing. Lastly, he returns to the cause of the right, gloomily foreshadowing the possibility of something being unearthed to criminate Mr. Boffin, of whom he once more candidly admits it cannot be denied that he profits by a murder, and anticipating his denunciation by the friendly movers to avenging justice. And this Mr. Wegg expressly points out, not at all for the sake of the reward, though it would be a want of principle not to take it. To all this Mr. Venus, with his shock of dusty hair cocked after the manner of a terrier's ears, attends profoundly. When Mr. Wegg, having finished, opens his arms wide, as if to show Mr. Venus how bare his breast is, and then folds them pending a reply, Mr. Venus winks at him with both eyes some little time before speaking. "'I see you have tried it by yourself, Mr. Wegg,' he says, when he does speak. "'You have found out the difficulties by experience.' "'No, it can hardly be said that I have tried it,' replies Wegg, a little dashed by the hint. "'I've just skimmed it, 
skimmed it. "'And found nothing besides the difficulties?' Wegg shakes his head. "'I scarcely know what to say to this, Mr. Wegg,' observes Venus, after ruminating for a while. "'Say yes,' Wegg naturally urges. "'If I wasn't soured, my answer would be no. But being soured, Mr. Wegg, and driven to reckless madness and desperation, I suppose it's yes.' Wegg joyfully reproduces the two glasses, repeats the ceremony of clinking their rims, and inwardly drinks with great heartiness to the health and success in life of the young lady who has reduced Mr. Venus to his present convenient state of mind. The articles of the friendly move are then severally recited and agreed upon. They are but secrecy, fidelity, and perseverance. The bower to be always free of access to Mr. Venus for his researches, and every precaution to be taken against their attracting observation in the neighbourhood. "'There's a footstep!' exclaimed Venus. "'Where?' cries Wegg, starting. "'Outside. St!' They are in the act of ratifying the treaty of friendly move by shaking hands upon it. They softly break off, light their pipes which have gone out, and lean back in their chairs. No doubt a footstep. It approaches the window and a hand taps at the glass. "'Come in,' calls Wegg, meaning come round by the door. But the heavy old-fashioned sash is slowly raised, and a head slowly looks in out of the dark background of night. "'Pray, is Mr. Silas Wegg here? Oh, I see him.' The friendly movers might not have been quite at their ease, even though the visitor had entered in the usual manner. But, leaning on the breast-high window, and staring in out of the darkness, they find the visitor extremely embarrassing, especially Mr. Venus, who removes his pipe, draws back his head, and stares at the starer, as if it were his own Hindu baby come to fetch him home. "'Good evening, Mr. Wegg. The yard-gate lock should be looked to, if you please. It don't catch.' "'Is it Mr. Rokesmith?' falters Wegg. "'It is Mr. Rokesmith. Don't let me disturb you.' I'm not coming in. I have only a message for you, which I undertook to deliver on my way home to my lodgings. I was in two minds about coming beyond the gate without ringing, not knowing but you might have a dog about. Oh, I wish I had, mutters Wegg, with his back turned as he rose from his chair. St! Hush! The talking over stranger, Mr. Venus. Is that anyone I know? inquires the staring secretary. "'No, Mr. Rokesmith, friend of mine, passing the evening with me.' "'Oh, I beg his pardon. Mr. Boffin wishes you to know that he does not expect you to stay at home any evening on the chance of his coming. It has occurred to him that he may, without intending it, have been a tie upon you. In future, if he should come without notice, he will take his chance of finding you, and it will be all the same to him if he does not. I undertook to tell you on my way. That's all.' With that, and good-night.' The secretary lowers the window, and disappears. They listen, and hear his footsteps go back to the gate, and hear the gate close after him. "'And for that individual, Mr. Venus,' remarks Wegg, when he is fully gone, "'I've been passed over. Let me ask you what you think of him.' Apparently Mr. Venus does not know what to think of him, for he makes sundry efforts to reply, without delivering himself of any other articulate utterance than that he has a singular look. "'A double look, you mean, sir,' rejoins Wegg, 
playing bitterly upon the word, "'that's his look. "'Any amount of singular look for me, but not a double look. "'That's an underhanded mind, sir.' "'Do you say there's something against him?' Venus asks. "'Something against him?' repeats Wegg. "'Something? "'What would the relief be to my feelings, as a fellow-man, "'if I wasn't the slave of truth, "'and didn't feel myself compelled to answer everything?' See into what wonderful maudlin refuges featherless ostriches plunge their heads. It is such unspeakable moral compensation to Wegg, to be overcome by the consideration that Mr. Rokesmith has an underhanded mind. "'On this starlight night, Mr. Venus,' he remarks, when he is showing that friendly mover out across the yard, and both are something the worse for mixing again and again, on this starlight night, to think that talking over strangers and underhanded minds can go walking home under the sky as if they was all square. The spectacle of those orbs, says Mr. Venus, gazing upward with his hat tumbling off, brings heavy on me her crushing words that she did not wish to regard herself nor yet to be regarded in that, I know, I know, you needn't repeat em, says Wegg pressing his hand. But think how those stars steady me in the cause of the right against some that shall be nameless. It isn't that I bear malice, but see how they glisten with old remembrances. Old remembrances of what, sir? Mr. Venus begins drearily replying, of her words in her own handwriting that she does not wish to regard herself, nor yet when Silas cuts him short with dignity. No, sir, remembrances of our house, of Master George, of Aunt Jane, of Uncle Parker, all laid waste, all offered up sacrifices to the minion of fortune and the worm of the hour. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven Book Two, Chapter Eight of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather, Chapter Eight, in which an innocent elopement occurs. The minion of fortune and the worm of the hour or in less cutting language Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, the Golden Dustman, had become as much at home in his eminently aristocratic family mansion as he was likely ever to be. He could not but feel that, like an eminently aristocratic family cheese, it was much too large for his wants, and bred an infinite amount of parasites. But he was content to regard this drawback on his property as a sort of perpetual legacy duty. He felt the more resigned to it, for as much as Mrs. Boffin enjoyed herself completely, and Miss Bella was delighted. That young lady was, no doubt, an acquisition to the Boffins. She was far too pretty to be unattractive anywhere, and far too quick of perception to be below the tone of her new career. Whether it improved her heart might be a matter of taste that was open to question but as touching another matter of taste, its improvement of her appearance and manner, there could be no question whatever. 
and thus it soon came about that Miss Bella began to set Mrs. Boffin right, and even further that Miss Bella began to feel ill at ease and as it were responsible when she saw Mrs. Boffin going wrong. Not that so sweet a disposition, and so sound a nature could ever go very wrong, even among the great visiting authorities, who agreed that the Boffins were charmingly vulgar, which for certain was not their own case in saying so, but that when she made a slip on the social ice, on which all the children of Podsnappery, with genteel souls to be saved, are required to skate in circles, or to slide in long rows, she inevitably tripped Miss Bella up, so that young lady felt— and caused her to experience great confusion under the glances of the more skilful performers engaged in those ice exercises. At Miss Bella's time of life it was not to be expected that she should examine herself very closely on the congruity or stability of her position in Mr. Boffin's house. And as she had never been sparing of complaints of her old home, when she had no other to compare it with, so there was no novelty of ingratitude or disdain in her very much preferring her new one. "'An invaluable man is Rokesmith,' said Mr. Boffin, after some two or three months. "'But I can't quite make him out.' Neither could Bella, so she found the subject rather interesting. "'He takes more care of my affairs, morning, noon, and night,' said Mr. Boffin, "'than fifty other men put together, either could or would. And yet he has his ways of his own, that are like tying a scaffolding pole right across the road, and bringing me up short, when I am almost a-walking arm-in-arm with him." "'May I ask how so, sir?' inquired Bella. "'Well, my dear,' said Mr. Boffin, "'he won't meet any company here, but you. When we have visitors, I should wish him to have his regular place at the table like ourselves, but no, he won't take it. "'If he considers himself above it,' said Miss Bella, with an airy toss of her head, "'I should leave him alone.' "'It ain't that, my dear,' replied Mr. Boffin, thinking it over. "'He don't consider himself above it.' "'Perhaps he considers himself beneath it,' suggested Bella. "'If so, he ought to know best.' "'No, my dear, nor it ain't that neither. "'No,' repeated Mr. Boffin, with a shake of his head, after again thinking it over. "'Rokesmith's a modest man, but he don't consider himself beneath it.' "'Then what does he consider, sir?' asked Bella. "'Dashed if I know,' said Mr. Boffin. "'It seemed, at first, as if it was only Lightwood that he objected to meet, and now it seems to be everybody, except you.' "'Oh-ho!' thought Miss Bella. "'Indeed! That's it, is it?' for Mr. Mortimer Lightfoot had dined there two or three times, and she had met him elsewhere, and he had shown her some attention. Rather cool in a secretary, and Pa's lodger, to make me the subject of his jealousy. That Pa's daughter should be so contemptuous of Pa's lodger was odd, but there were odder anomalies than that in the mind of the spoilt girl, spoilt first by poverty, and then by wealth be it this history's part, however, to leave them to unravel themselves. A little too much, I think, Miss Bella reflected scornfully, to have Pa's lodger laying claim to me, and keeping eligible people off. A little too much, indeed, to have the opportunities opened to me by Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, appropriated by a mere secretary, and Pa's lodger. Yet it was not so very long ago, 
that Bella had been fluttered by the discovery that this same secretary and lodger seemed to like her. Ah, but the eminently aristocratic mansion and Mrs. Boffin's dressmaker had not come into play then. In spite of his seemingly retiring manners, a very intrusive person, this secretary and lodger, in Miss Bella's opinion, always a light in his office room when we came home from the play of the opera, and he always at the carriage door to hand us out. Always a provoking radiance, too, on Mrs. Boffin's face, and an abominably cheerful reception of him, as if it were possible seriously to approve what the man had in his mind. "'You never charge me, Miss Wilfer,' said the secretary, encountering her by chance alone in the great drawing-room, "'with the commissions for home.' I shall always be happy to execute any commands you may have in that direction. "'Pray, what do you mean, Mr. Rokesmith?' inquired Miss Bella, with languidly drooping eyelids. "'By home, I mean your father's house at Holloway?' She coloured under the retort, so skilfully thrust, that the words seemed to be merely a plain answer, given in plain good faith, and said, rather more emphatically and sharply, "'What commissions and commands are you speaking of?' "'Only little words of remembrance, as I assume you sent somehow or other,' replied the secretary, with his former air. "'It would be a pleasure to me, if you would make me the bearer of them. As you know, I come and go between the two houses every day.' "'You needn't remind me of that, sir.' She was too quick in this petulant sally against Pa's lodger, and she felt that she had been so when she met his quiet look. "'They don't send many—what was your expression?—words of remembrance to me?' said Bella, making haste to take refuge in ill usage. "'They frequently ask me about you, and I give them such slight intelligence as I can.' "'I hope it's truly given,' exclaimed Bella. "'I hope you cannot doubt it, but it would be very much against you if you could.' "'No, I do not doubt it. I deserve the reproach, which is very just indeed. I beg your pardon, Mr. Rokesmith.' "'I should beg you not to do so, but that it shows you to such admirable advantage,' he replied with earnestness. "'Forgive me, I could not help saying that. To return to what I have digressed from, let me add that perhaps they think I report them to you, deliver little messages and the like. "'But I forbear to trouble you, as you never ask me.' "'I am going, sir,' said Bella, looking at him, as if he had reproved her, "'to see them to-morrow.' "'Is that,' he asked, hesitating, "'said to me, or to them?' "'To which you please?' "'To both. Shall I make it a message?' "'You can, if you like, Mr. Rokesmith.' "'Message or no message, I am going to see them to-morrow.' "'Then I will tell them so.' He lingered a moment, as though to give her the opportunity of prolonging the conversation if she wished. As she remained silent, he left her. Two incidents of the little interview were felt by Miss Bella herself, when alone again, to be very curious. The first was that he unquestionably left her with a penitent air upon her, and a penitent feeling in her heart. The second was that she had not an intention or thought of going home until she had announced it to him as a settled design. 
"'What can I mean by it, or what can he mean by it?' was her mental inquiry. "'He has no right to any power over me, and how do I come to mind him when I don't care for him?' Mrs. Boffin, insisting that Bella should make to-morrow's expedition in the chariot, she went home in great grandeur. Mrs. Wilfer and Miss Lavinia had speculated much on the probabilities and improbabilities of her coming in this gorgeous state, and, on beholding the chariot from the window at which they were secreted to look out for it, agreed that it must be detained at the door as long as possible for the mortification and confusion of the neighbours. Then they repaired to the usual family room to receive Miss Bella with a becoming show of indifference. The family room looked very small and very mean, and the downward staircase by which it was attained looked very narrow and very crooked. The little house and all its arrangements were a poor contrast to the eminently aristocratic dwelling. I can hardly believe, thought Bella, that I ever did endure life in this place. Gloomy majesty on the part of Mrs. Wilfer, and native pertness on the part of Lavvy, did not mend the matter. Bella really stood in natural need of a little help, and she got none. "'This,' said Mrs. Wilfer, presenting a cheek to be kissed, as sympathetic and responsive as the back of the bowl of a spoon, "'is quite an honour. You will probably find your sister Lavvy grown, Bella.' "'Ma,' Miss Lavinia interposed, "'There can be no objection to your being aggravating, because Bella richly deserves it. But I really must request that you will not drag in such ridiculous nonsense as my having grown when I am past the growing age.' "'I grew myself,' Mrs. Wilfer sternly proclaimed, "'after I was married.' "'Very well, Ma,' returned Lavvy, "'then I think you had much better have left it alone.' The lofty glare with which the majestic woman received this answer might have embarrassed a less pert opponent, but it had no effect upon Lavinia, who, leaving her parent to the enjoyment of any amount of glaring as she might deem desirable under the circumstances, accosted her sister undismayed. "'I suppose you won't consider yourself quite disgraced, Bella, if I give you a kiss? Well, and how do you do, Bella, and how are your boffins?' "'Peace!' exclaimed Mrs. Wilfer. Hold! I will not suffer this tone of levity. My goodness me! How are your spoffins, then? said Lavvy, since Ma so very much objects to your boffins. Impertinent girl! Minx! said Mrs. Wilfer, with dread severity. I don't care whether I'm a minx or a sphinx, returned Lavinia, coolly tossing her head. It's exactly the same thing to me, and I'd every bit as soon be one as the other. But I know this. I'll not grow after I'm married. You will not. You will not, repeated Mrs. Wilfer, solemnly. No, Ma, I will not. Nothing shall induce me. Mrs. Wilfer, having waved her gloves, became loftily pathetic. But it was to be expected— Thus she spake. A child of mine deserts me for the proud and prosperous, and another child of mine despises me. It is quite fitting. Ma, Bella struck in, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin are prosperous, no doubt, but you have no right to say they are proud. You must know very well that they are not. In short, Ma, 
said Lavvy, bouncing over to the enemy without a word of notice. "'You must know very well, or if you don't, more shame for you, that Mr. and Mrs. Boffin are just absolute perfection.' "'Truly,' returned Mrs. Wilfer, courteously receiving the deserter, "'it would seem that we are required to think so, and this, Lavinia, is my reason for objecting to a tone of levity.' Mrs. Boffin, of whose physiognomy I can never speak with the composure I would desire to preserve, and your mother, are not on terms of intimacy. It is not for a moment to be supposed that she and her husband dare to presume to speak of this family as the Wilfers. I cannot therefore condescend to speak of them as the Boffins. No, for such a tone, call it familiarity, levity, equality, or what you will, would imply those social interchanges which do not exist. Do I render myself intelligible?" Without taking the least notice of this inquiry, albeit delivered in an imposing and forensic manner, Lavinia reminded her sister, "'After all, you know, Bella, you haven't told us how your what's-his-names are.' "'I don't want to speak of them here,' replied Bella, suppressing indignation and tapping her foot on the floor. They are much too kind and too good to be drawn into these discussions. "'Why put it so?' demanded Mrs. Wilfer, with biting sarcasm. "'Why adopt a circuitous form of speech? It is polite, and it is obliging, but why do it? Why not openly say that they are much too kind and too good for us? We understand the allusion. Why disguise the phrase?' "'Ma!' said Bella, with one beat of her foot. "'You're enough to drive a saint mad, and so is Lavvy.' "'Unfortunate Lavvy!' cried Mrs. Wilfer, in a tone of commiseration. "'She always comes for it, my poor child.' But Lavvy, with the suddenness of her former desertion, now bounced over to the other enemy, very sharply remarking, "'Don't patronise me, Ma, because I can take care of myself.' "'I only wonder,' resumed Mrs. Wilfer, directing her observations to her elder daughter, as safer on the whole than her utterly unmanageable younger, "'that you found time and inclination to tear yourself from Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, and come to see us at all.' "'I only wonder that our claims, contending against the superior claims of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, had any weight. I feel I ought to be thankful for gaining so much in competition with Mr. and Mrs. Boffin.' The good lady bitterly emphasised the first letter of the word Boffin, as if it represented her chief objection to the owners of that name, and as if she could have borne Doffin, Moffin, or Poffin much better. Ma said Bella angrily. "'You force me to say that I am truly sorry I did come home, and that I never will come home again, except when poor dear Pa is here, for Pa is too magnanimous to feel envy and spite towards my generous friends, and Pa is delicate enough and gentle enough to remember the sort of little claim they thought I had upon them, and the unusually trying position in which, through no act of my own, I had been placed.' and i always did love poor dear pa better than all the rest of you put together and i always do and i always shall here bella deriving no comfort from her charming bonnet and her elegant dress burst into tears i think r w 
cried Mrs. Wilfer, lifting up her eyes and apostrophizing the air, that if you were present it would be a trial to your feelings to hear your wife and the mother of your family depreciated in your name. But fate has spared you this R.W., whatever it may have thought proper to inflict upon her. Here Mrs. Wilfer burst into tears. "'I hate the Boffins!' protested Miss Lavinia. "'I don't care who objects to their being called the Boffins. I will call them the Boffins. The Boffins, the Boffins, the Boffins! And I say they are mischief-making Boffins, and I say the Boffins have set Bella against me, and I tell the Boffins to their faces.' which was not strictly the fact, but the young lady was excited, that they are detestable boffins, disreputable boffins, odious boffins, beastly boffins, there! Here Miss Lavinia burst into tears. The front garden gate clanked, and the secretary was seen, coming at a brisk pace up the steps. "'Leave me to open the door to him,' said Mrs. Wilfer, rising with stately resignation, as she shook her head and dried her eyes. "'We—' "'Have at present no stipendiary girl to do so. We have nothing to conceal. If he sees these traces of emotion on our cheeks, let him construe them as he may.' With those words she stalked out. In a few moments she stalked in again, proclaiming in her heraldic way, "'Mr. Rokesmith is the bearer of a packet for Miss Bella Wilfer.' Mr. Rokesmith followed close upon his name, and, of course, saw what was amiss but he discreetly affected to see nothing, and addressed Miss Bella. "'Mr. Boffin intended to have placed this in the carriage for you this morning. He wished you to have it, as a little keepsake he had prepared. It is only a purse, Miss Wilfer, but as he was disappointed in his fancy, I volunteered to come after you with it.' Bella took it in her hand, and thanked him. "'We have been quarrelling here a little, Mr. Rokesmith, but not more than we used.' "'You know our agreeable ways among ourselves. "'You find me just going. "'Good-bye, Mamma. "'Good-bye, Lavvy.' "'And with a kiss for each, Miss Bella turned to the door. "'The secretary would have attended her, "'but Mrs. Wilfer advancing and saying with dignity, "'Pardon me. "'Permit me to assert my natural right "'to escort my child to the equipage "'which is in waiting for her.' "'He begged pardon and gave place.' It was a very magnificent spectacle indeed, to see Mrs. Wilfer throw open the house-door, and loudly demand, with extended gloves, "'The male domestic of Mrs. Boffin!' To whom, presenting himself, she delivered the brief but majestic charge, "'Miss Wilfer! Coming out!' And so delivered her over, like a female lieutenant of the tower, relinquishing a state prisoner. The effect of this ceremonial was, for some quarter of an hour afterwards, perfectly paralysing on the neighbours, and was much enhanced by the worthy lady airing herself for that term in a kind of splendidly serene trance on the top step. When Bella was seated in the carriage, she opened the little packet in her hand. It contained a pretty purse, and the purse contained a bank-note for fifty pounds. "'This will be a joyful surprise for poor dear Pa!' said Bella, and I'll take it myself into the city. As she was uninformed, respecting the exact locality of the place of business of Chicksey, Veneering, and Stobbles, but knew it to be near Mincing Lane, she directed herself to be driven to the corner of that darksome spot. 
Then she dispatched the male domestic of Mrs. Boffin, in search of the counting-house of Chicksey, Veneering, and Stobbles, with a message importing that if R. Wilfer could come out, there was a lady waiting who would be glad to speak with him. The delivery of these mysterious words from the mouth of a footman caused so great an excitement in the counting-house that a youthful scout was instantly appointed to follow Rumpty, observe the lady, and come in with his report. Nor was the agitation by any means diminished, when the scout rushed back with the intelligence that the lady was a slap-up gal in a bang-up chariot. Rumpty himself, with his pen behind his ear, under his rusty hat, arrived at the carriage-door in a breathless condition, and had been fairly lugged into the vehicle by his cravat, and embraced almost unto choking, before he recognised his daughter. "'My dear child!' he then panted incoherently. "'Good gracious me! What a lovely woman you are! I thought you had been unkind, and, and forgotten your mother and sister.' "'I have just been to see them, Pa, dear.' "'Oh, and how, how did you find your mother?' asked R. W., dubiously. "'Very disagreeable, Pa, and so was Lavvy.' "'They um, are sometimes a little liable to it,' observed the patient cherub. "'But I hope you made allowances, Bella, my dear?' "'No, I was disagreeable too, Pa. We were all of us disagreeable together.' "'But I want you to come and dine with me somewhere, Pa.' "'Why, my dear, I have already partaken of a—if one might mention such an article in this superb chariot—of a saveloy,' replied R. Wilfer, modestly dropping his voice on the word, as he eyed the canary-coloured fittings. "'Oh, that's nothing, Pa.' "'Truly it ain't as much as one could sometimes wish it to be, my dear.' he admitted, drawing his hand across his mouth. Still, when circumstances over which you have no control interpose obstacles between yourself and small Germans, you can't do better than bring a contented mind to hear on, again dropping his voice in deference to the chariot, Savaloys. You poor good pa, pa, do, I beg and pray, get leave for the rest of the day, and come and pass it with me. "'Well, my dear, I'll cut back and ask for leave.' "'But before you cut back,' said Bella, who had already taken him by the chin, pulled his hat off, and begun to stick up his hair in her old way, "'do say that you are sure I am giddy and inconsiderate, but have never really slighted you, Pa.' "'My dear, I say it with all my heart, and might I likewise observe—' her father delicately hinted, with a glance out at window, that perhaps it might be calculated to attract attention, having one's hair publicly done by a lovely woman in an elegant turn-out in Fenchurch Street. Bella laughed, and put on his hat again. But when his boyish figure bobbed away, its shabbiness and cheerful patience smote the tears out of her eyes. "'I hate that secretary for thinking it of me,' she said to herself, and yet, it seems half true. Back came her father, more like a boy than ever, in his release from school. All right, my dear. Leave given at once. Really, very handsomely done. 
"'Now where can we find some quiet place, Pa, "'in which I can wait for you while you go on an errand for me, "'if I send the carriage away?' "'It demanded cogitation. "'You see, my dear,' he explained, "'you really have become such a very lovely woman "'that it ought to be a very quiet place.' At length he suggested, "'Near the garden, up by the Trinity House, on Tower Hill.' So they were driven there, and Bella dismissed the chariot, sending a pencilled note by it to Mrs. Boffin that she was with her father. "'Now, Pa, attend to what I am going to say, and promise and vow to be obedient.' "'I promise and vow, my dear.' "'You ask no questions. You take this purse.' "'You go to the nearest place where they keep everything of the very, very best ready-made. "'You buy and put on the most beautiful suit of clothes, the most beautiful hat, "'and the most beautiful pair of bright boots, patent leather, Pa, mind, "'that are to be got for money. "'And you come back to me.' "'But, my dear Bella, take care, Pa,' pointing her forefinger at him merrily, "'you have promised and vowed.' "'It's perjury, you know.' There was water in the foolish little fellow's eyes, but she kissed them dry, though her own were wet, and he bobbed away again. After half an hour he came back so brilliantly transformed that Bella was obliged to walk round him in ecstatic admiration twenty times before she could draw her arm through his and delightedly squeeze it. "'Now, Pa,' said Bella, hugging him close, "'take this lovely woman out to dinner.' "'Where shall we go, my dear?' "'Greenwich,' said Bella, valiantly. "'And be sure to treat this lovely woman with everything of the best.' While they were going along to take boat, "'Don't you wish, my dear,' said R. W. timidly, "'that your mother was here?' "'No, I don't, Pa.' "'for I like to have you all to myself to-day. "'I was always your little favourite at home, and you were always mine. "'We have run away together often before now, haven't we, Pa?' "'Ah, to be sure we have. "'Many a Sunday when your mother was, um, was a little liable to it,' "'repeating his former delicate expression, after pausing to cough. "'Yes, and I'm afraid I was seldom or never as good as I ought to have been, Pa.' I made you carry me, over and over again, when you should have made me walk. And I often drove you in harness, when you would much rather have sat down and read your newspapers. Didn't I? Sometimes, sometimes. But, law, what a child you were! What a companion you were! Companion? That's just what I want to be to-day, Pa. You are safe to succeed, my love. "'Your brothers and sisters have all in their turns been companions to me, to a certain extent. "'But only to a certain extent. "'Your mother has, throughout life, been a companion that any man might might look up to, "'and, and, and commit the sayings of to memory, and form himself upon, if he—' "'If he liked the model,' suggested Bella. "'Well, yes,' he returned, thinking about it, not quite satisfied with the phrase. "'Or perhaps I might say, if it was in him, 
supposing for instance that a man wanted to be always marching he would find your mother an inestimable companion but if he had any taste for walking or should wish at any time to break into a trot he might sometimes find it a little difficult to keep step with your mother or take it this way bella he added after a moment's reflection supposing that a man had to go through life we won't say with a companion but we'll say to a tune very good supposing that tune allotted to him was the dead march in saul well it would be a very suitable tune for particular occasions none better but it would be difficult to keep time with in the ordinary run of domestic transactions for instance if he took his supper after a hard day to the dead march in saul his food might be likely to sit heavy on him or if he was at any time inclined to relieve his mind by singing a comic song or dancing a hornpipe and was obliged to do it to the dead march in saul he might find himself put out in the execution of his lively intentions poor pa thought bella as she hung upon his arm now what i will say for you my dear the cherub pursued mildly and without a notion of complaining is that you are so adaptable so adaptable indeed i am afraid i have shown a wretched temper pa i am afraid i have been very complaining and very capricious i seldom or never thought of it before but when i sat in the carriage just now and saw you coming along the pavement i reproached myself not at all my dear don't speak of such a thing a happy and a chatty man was pa in his new clothes that day take it for all in all it was perhaps the happiest day he had ever known in his life not even excepting that on which his heroic partner had approached the nuptial altar to the tune of the dead march in saul the little expedition down the river was delightful and the little room overlooking the river into which they were shown for dinner was delightful everything was delightful the park was delightful the punch was delightful the dishes of fish were delightful the wine was delightful bella was more delightful than any other item in the festival drawing pa out in the gayest manner making a point of always mentioning herself as the lovely woman stimulating pa to order things by declaring that the lovely woman insisted on being treated with them and in short causing pa to be quite enraptured with the consideration that he was the pa of such a charming daughter and then as they sat looking at the ships and steamboats making their way to the sea with the tide that was running down the lovely woman imagined all sorts of voyages for herself and pa now pa in the character of owner of a lumbering square-sailed collier was tacking away to newcastle to fetch black diamonds to make his fortune with now pa was going to china in that handsome three-masted ship to bring home opium with which he could for ever cut out chicksy veneering and stobbles and to bring home silks and shawls without end for the decoration of his charming daughter now john harmon's disastrous fate was all a dream and he had come home and found the lovely woman just the article for him and the lovely woman had found him just the article for her and they were going away on a trip in their gallant bark to look after their vines 
with streamers flying at all points, a band playing on deck, and Pa established in the great cabin. Now John Harmon was consigned to his grave again, and a merchant of immense wealth, name unknown, had courted and married the lovely woman, and he was so enormously rich that everything you saw upon the river sailing or steaming belonged to him, and he kept a perfect fleet of yachts for pleasure, and that little impudent yacht which you saw over there, with the great white sail, was called the Bella, in honour of his wife, and she held her state aboard when it pleased her like a modern Cleopatra. Anon there would embark in that troop-ship, when she got to Gravesend, a mighty general of large property, name also unknown, who wouldn't hear of going to victory without his wife, and whose wife was the lovely woman, and she was destined to become the idol of all the red-coats and blue-jackets alow and aloft. And then again, you saw that ship being towed out by a steam-tug? Well, where did you suppose she was going to? She was going among the coral-reeves, and coconuts, and all that sort of thing, and she was chartered for a fortunate individual of the name of Pa, himself on board, and much respected by all hands, and she was going, for his sole profit and advantage, to fetch a cargo of sweet-smelling woods, the most beautiful that ever were seen, and the most profitable that ever were heard of, and her cargo would be a great fortune, as indeed it ought to be. The lovely woman who had purchased her, and fitted her expressly for this voyage, being married to an Indian prince, who was a something or other, and who wore cashmere shawls all over himself, and diamonds and emeralds blazing in his turban, and was beautifully coffee-coloured and excessively devoted, though a little too jealous. Thus Bella ran on merrily, in a manner perfectly enchanting to Pa, who was as willing to put his head into the sultan's tub of water as the beggar-boys below the window were to put their heads in the mud. "'I suppose, my dear,' said Pa after dinner, "'we may come to the conclusion at home that we have lost you for good?' Bella shook her head. Didn't know. Couldn't say. All she was able to report was that she was most handsomely supplied with everything she could possibly want and that whenever she hinted at leaving, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, they wouldn't hear of it. "'And now, Pa,' pursued Bella, "'I'll make a confession to you. I am the most mercenary little wretch that ever lived in the world.' "'I should hardly have thought it of you, my dear,' returned her father, first glancing at himself, and then at the dessert. "'I understand what you mean, Pa.' But it's not that. It's not that I care for money to keep as money, but I do care so much for what it will buy. Really, I think most of us do, returned R. W. But not to the dreadful extent that I do, Pa. Ooh! cried Bella, screwing the exclamation out of herself with a twist of her dimpled chin. I am so mercenary. With a wistful glance, R. W. said, in default of having anything better to say, "'About uh, when did you begin to feel it coming on, my dear?' "'That's it, Pa. That's the terrible part of it. When I was at home and only knew what it was to be poor, I grumbled, but didn't so much mind. When I was at home expecting to be rich, I thought vaguely of all the great things I would do. 
but when I had been disappointed of my splendid fortune, and came to see it from day to day in other hands, and to have before my eyes what it could really do, then I became the mercenary little wretch I am. "'It's your fancy, my dear.' "'I can assure you it's nothing of the sort, Pa,' said Bella, nodding at him, with her very pretty eyebrows raised as high as they would go, and looking comically frightened. "'It's a fact.' I am always avariciously scheming. Law? But how? I'll tell you, Pa. I don't mind telling you, because we have always been favourites of each other's, and because you are not like a Pa, but more like a sort of a younger brother, with a dear venerable chubbiness on him. And besides, added Bella, laughing as she pointed a rallying finger at his face, because I have you in my power. This is a secret expedition. If ever you tell of me, I'll tell of you. I'll tell Ma that you dined at Greenwich. Well, seriously, my dear, observed R. W. with some trepidation of manner, it might be as well not to mention it. Aha! laughed Bella. I knew you wouldn't like it, sir. So you keep my confidence and I'll keep yours. But betray the lovely woman, and you shall find her a serpent. Now, you may give me a kiss, Pa, and I should like to give your hair a turn, because it has been dreadfully neglected in my absence." R. W. submitted his head to the operator, and the operator went on talking, at the same time putting separate locks of his hair through a curious process of being smartly rolled over her two revolving forefingers which were then suddenly pulled out of it in opposite lateral directions. On each of these occasions the patient winced and winked. "'I have made up my mind that I must have money, Pa. I feel that I can't beg it, borrow it, or steal it, and so I have resolved that I must marry it.' R. W. cast up his eyes towards her, as well as he could under the operating circumstances, and said in a tone of remonstrance, "'My dear Bella!' "'Have resolved, I say, Pa, that to get money I must marry money, in consequence of which I am always looking out for money to captivate.' "'My dear Bella!' "'Yes, Pa, that is the state of the case. If ever there was a mercenary plotter, whose thoughts and designs were always in her mean occupation, I am the amiable creature.' but I don't care. I hate and detest being poor, and I won't be poor if I can marry money. Now, you are deliciously fluffy, Pa, and in a state to astonish the waiter and pay the bill. But, my dear Bella, this is quite alarming at your age. I told you so, Pa, but you wouldn't believe it, returned Bella, with a pleasant childish gravity. Isn't it shocking? "'It would be quite so, if you fully knew what you said, my dear, or meant it.' "'Well, Pa, I can only tell you that I mean nothing else. Talk to me of love,' said Bella contemptuously, though her face and figure certainly rendered the subject no incongruous one. "'Talk to me of fiery dragons, but talk to me of poverty and wealth, and there, indeed, we touch upon realities.' "'My dear!' "'Dear, this is becoming awful!' Her father was emphatically beginning, when she stopped him. "'Pa, tell me, 
Did you marry money?' "'You know I didn't, my dear.' Bella hummed the dead march in Saul, and said, after all it signified very little. But seeing him look grave and downcast, she took him round the neck, and kissed him back to cheerfulness again. "'I didn't mean that last touch, Pa. It was only said in joke. Now mind, you are not to tell of me, and I'll not tell of you. And more than that, I promise to have no secrets from you, Pa, and you make certain that whatever mercenary things go on, I shall always tell you all about them in strict confidence.' Fain to be satisfied with this concession from the lovely woman, R. W. rang the bell, and paid the bill. "'Now, all the rest of this, Pa,' said Bella, rolling up the purse when they were alone again, hammering it small with her little fist on the table, and cramming it into one of the pockets of his new waistcoat, "'is for you to buy presents with, for them at home, and to pay bills with, and to divide as you like, and spend exactly as you think proper.' Last of all, take notice, Pa, that it's not the fruit of any avaricious scheme. Perhaps if it was, your little mercenary wretch of a daughter wouldn't make so free with it. After which she tugged at his coat with both hands, and pulled him all askew in buttoning that garment over the precious waistcoat pocket, and then tied her dimples into a bonnet-strings in a very knowing way, and took him back to London. Arrived at Mr. Boffin's door, she set him with his back against it, tenderly took him by the ears, as convenient handles for her purpose, and kissed him until he knocked muffled double knocks at the door with the back of his head. That done, she once more reminded him of their compact, and gaily parted from him. Not so gaily, however, but the tears filled her eyes as he went away down the dark street. Not so gaily, but that she several times said, "'Ah, poor little Pa!' Ah, poor, dear, struggling, shabby little Pa! Before she took heart to knock at the door. Not so gaily, but that the brilliant furniture seemed to stare her out of countenance, as if it insisted on being compared with the dingy furniture at home. Not so gaily, but she fell into very low spirits, sitting late in her own room, and very heartily wept, as she wished, now that the deceased old John Harmon had never made a will about her, now that the deceased young John Harmon had lived to marry her. "'Contradictory things to wish,' said Bella, "'but my life and fortunes are so contradictory altogether that what can I expect myself to be?' End of Book Two Chapter Eight Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.